And welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast, where we talk about how medieval and medieval-inspired movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? Media Evil is now officially back from hiatus, so I guess I should have said welcome back to Media Evil. I'm Sarah F. Decker, a medieval historian, and for today's episode, I am joined by Ollie Brady, once celebrated as co-host of this podcast, but now brought low and reviled as a traitor, uh, who will be... <laughs> you, you just wait until the Estimadios at the end before you call me a traitor. <laughs> I might be the traitor. So Ollie, welcome. Why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? And uh, what we are going to be talking about today and why you wanted to talk about this movie. Okay, so I'm Ollie. I'm a physics guy. I'm Irish, as you can tell from my delightful accent. Uh, I was I was the original co-host of this podcast way back when. And I was on the very first episode. And I don't know if Sarah remembers this, but we discussed picking a big movie for the first episode we were like we're gonna do one of the big movies what are the big movies set in this time period and it was really a toss-up between braveheart and gladiator and we went with braveheart specifically so we could call mel gibson a bastard on the first two minutes of the episode and and also because braveheart is actually set in the middle ages as opposed to gladiator which is set in the like long medieval period that we uh identify as acceptable for the purposes of this podcast i was mostly being facetious uh that's why i wanted to do either of two really big famous movies and sarah was like no ollie let's actually do one that's properly in the time period first i was like all right fine plus mel gibson bit of a dick right um so because sarah said she was off for the summer and she was off traveling around europe doing cool archive stuff apparently she was in the archives till like six o'clock one day guys Ooh, ridiculous what a tough ridiculous the what french a, keeping the archives open until six what a tough lifestyle but uh, I said, when you come back, would you like to talk about Gladiator as a huge movie? It'll get people back who'd been missing for a little bit, who've been missing for the podcast or get new people in. And also the director, uh, incredibly talented director, Ridley <coughs> Scott. Um, he has a new movie on the horizon. He's got two new movies, according to Wikipedia. One of them is about Napoleon and the other one is called Gladiator 2 and I think it would be good to strike now when Iron is hot before Ridley Mm -hmm. releases either of those two movies Uh, and I'm assuming that Sarah will cover both of them I want to say right now that I do not want to be on the Gladiator or sorry on either of those two episodes and i i do like jumping back in for example sarah at some stage we should do apocalypto the mel gibson movie because number one yeah. it's, it's a great movie and number two it's a better it? movie apocalypto ge- genuinely it's it's a brilliant hmm. movie hmm. um it, it sarah, have you seen apocalypto no i haven't i'm just suspicious it's really good but that's why we're doing gladiator uh from 2000 directed by ridley scott an oscar winning movie oscar winning performance from the main actor and just a really really and i believe oscar winning for the director uh, no i believe oscar nominated for the director no. but not oscar winning 
Gladiator also won Best Costume Design, which, like its other awards, is a travesty. So, Sarah, uh, first of all, and I know I've been doing this a few times since, since I came back, what are the most common misconceptions people have about the medieval period? So people often envision the medieval period as very, very violent and brutal. Um, I will say so, you know, as as I have kind of indicated, right, we are going a little back before what is properly considered the beginning of the Middle Ages. This movie takes place in the second century CE. Um, so about 180-ish, uh, typically the Middle Ages is thought to begin in the year 500. But given that, you know, the kind of realities of, uh, you know, teaching, certainly, you know, my teaching often kind of goes back into late antiquity and forward into the early modern period. And so that is something that is reflected on this podcast as well. Um, and I will say, you know, I suppose I do to some extent appreciate the fact that, you know, instead of having the things were better back in the kind of Roman Empire before, like, we moved into the shit Middle Ages. Like, no, actually, according to this movie, things were also shit in the Roman Empire. <laughs> uh, so we do have that element, uh, which, look, I said something positive about the movie. Yeah, um, well, you said, look, sort of. things were shit back then. That's not quite the same as positive about the movie. Uh, so, you know, we... Uh, So that is certainly a trope about the Middle Ages, is that things were very violent. That is certainly on display as well in this movie, even though it is set prior to the Middle Ages. Uh, Let's see. We also, I would say, often... Another kind of big, uh, big sort of, you know, trope that we have upon films set in the Middle Ages is that we really have this kind of uh, world that is dominated by men, where women don't really do very much. And uh, lo and behold, that's also a trope that is on display in this movie set in the Middle Ages, or set in the, uh, the uh, set in late antiquity, uh, a movie featuring precisely two women, one of whom does not have a name, and in fact, even in the credits is, uh, is listed as Maximus's wife. They couldn't even make up a name for her for the credits. <laughs> it's a new low, Ollie. It's. It, it, I have no. I have no way to defend that. <laughs> I wish I could, but I don't. I have no, literally. She is literally, literally mentioned now as Maximus's wife. I literally screamed. <laughs> I literally screamed when I was watching the credits and was like, they really couldn't even invent a fucking name for her for the fucking credits. Well, sometimes... Like, like what, you can't even just call her Mrs. Fridging? Like, Frigeria. Whoa. whoa Frigeria. Whoa, whoa Sarah. The, the accusation that this woman was fridged is entirely wrong because... Oh, is it? The definition of fridging is that it's a character who is killed off specifically... The oh, and you're right. She's not really a she's character. She's not a character. So she doesn't <laughs> count as fridging. Does that make it better? I think it does not. Does it? <laughs> but we'll see. Um, so, sir, we're talking about Gladiator from 2000. And as we said, Oscar winning. Um, beloved movie yeah. of the masses. But we should go through the cast. And we'll start with we'll start with the main man, uh, Maximus Decimus Meridius. Um Played by Russell Crowe. Uh, how how do you think you did? Okay. So I'm just going to get this out here now. I know it's beloved. I know it won Best Picture. I know Russell Crowe won Best Actor. 
I don't like this movie. I actually think it is a bad movie. And I think Russell Crowe's performance is bad. In fact, I think it is not a performance. I think Russell Crowe is not acting. I think he is sitting on the screen being Russell Crowe and like people are filming him saying lines just as Russell Crowe. I simply don't think there is an ounce of acting in the entirety of this performance. There just simply is not. I <laughs> I, I think he's pretty good. <laughs> no. Absolutely not. And I will admit, I don't like Russell Crowe. There are very, very few things that I have ever liked Russell Crowe in. And in most things, I actually think Russell Crowe is actively bad and is just essentially playing Russell Crowe. I, so I will admit that like this is a generalized opinion that I have, but it is specifically an opinion that I have about this performance. I just, I simply do not think he is good. I, I think he's pretty good. No, just for the listeners, this is the... What is good about him? Explain what is good about this performance. I think he is playing repressed emotion really well. Because I think that's just Russell Crowe, that he just represses his fucking emotions. But the thing is because that Because of Russell, his weird toxic masculinity. That Russell Crowe in real life doesn't repress his emotions. That's why he's throwing phones and grabbing people at award ceremonies and... And in this, he's stabbing people. people. <laughs> But only when What's he's, the difference? When he's in the arena, all of the other interactions, he's really keeping the rage underneath the surface. I, I think it's a nuanced and subtle performance from him. What? <laughs> We're gonna have to agree to disagree on that Sarah one. Sarah legitimately looks baffled. <laughs> so, uh, who plays the main antagonist in this, Sarah? That is Joaquin Phoenix, who is Commodus, who is hamming it the fuck up. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. I personally don't think this is a performance that is worthy of a Best Supporting Actor nomination, but I think he is fine. I think he is doing what is called for of him. Now, I don't think that's an especial, anything especially interesting or nuanced. I think he's a hammy villain. But, you know, all for a good hammy villain performance. Now, I don't think this is the best hammy villain performance. For example, I think he is far less good than, say, Alan Rickman in most of his roles, who, you know, is a classic hammy villain. Oh, like like when, when Alan Rickman played Snape. Uh-huh. Just, again, um, just, just for everybody listening, Snape is the villain in the Harry Potter Yeah, books. fuck Snape. And the movies, and anybody who thinks that there's some sort of redemption arc there are incorrect. No, he's a fucking incel. And I'll be be cutting out all references to incels. (laughs) Don't you dare. And I also actually think that... I think actually that like for hammy villains in Russell in um not Russell yes actually hammy villains in Russell Crowe Ridley Scott vehicles I actually think that uh I think Oscar Isaac's performance as John is actually better than this in Robin Hood yeah yeah with um with your favorite actor Russell Crowe <laughs> I didn't say Russell Crowe's performance was good in that Russell Crowe is giving the exact same shit performance in that as he is in this Sir, but is, I think Oscar Isaac was good in that movie is your assessment of Oscar Isaac in that movie mostly to do with that scene where we see him like mostly nude with his like six pack on display and stuff because and his curly hair no 
No, it's not. It's actually, it's like, it's actually based on like, I don't know, like it's hammy, but like actually he's like, I declare him to be an outlaw. Like it's ridiculous, but you know, he's hamming it the fuck up and it's fun. It's the only fun I had in that two hours of the I, movie. Whereas I, this, I'm still, I'm not, at none, in none of it am I having fun. I, I didn't have a single second of fun watching this movie. I watched that again recently and uh, yeah, I stand by my original assessment of that movie. Listen back to that episode, uh, medieval fans, if you've never done it. But I, I was not a massive fan of it. Um, I think Wacky is okay in this. Um, Commodus is a shitty character, and he plays him as a shitty, spoiled little brat. And yeah, it, 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 he's good. He's good. I'm, I'm not saying he's brilliant, but as you said, he's eating the scenery. I think he's fine. I think he is doing what is required of him. He's um, he gives me some strong. Uh, Jamie Lannister vibes in particular mm. in relation to his sister who's played by Connie Nielsen right uh, and actually I will say this was I, I did think this was interesting apparently he uh, was it's interesting that you say Jamie Lannister uh, because he actually was uh, apparently this performance was a major inspiration for um, what's his name Jack Gleason for the uh, for his portrayal of Joffrey Oh yeah, he's this is a hundred percent of Joffrey. Like that that's yeah. basically what he's doing. Um so Connie Nielsen plays Lucilla, uh, who is Commodus's sister, also the daughter of um Aurelius uh Caesar. And um yeah, uh Connie Nielsen is I think she's good in this movie. Um I thought she was just fine. Uh now have you seen her in anything before? I didn't think so. Okay, so I watched her this weekend. Because I've had a DVD on my shelf for, I'm going to say conservatively 22 years. That's just been sitting there, still wrapped in plastic. And this weekend while I was doing the cleanup, I said, I'm going to throw this movie in and see what it's called. So it's called Soldier from 1998 and it's got Kurt Russell in it. And Connie Nielsen plays the love interest stroke friend interest in it. I'm not really sure how to describe her. Um... It's a pretty good movie. It's like it's not a good movie, but it's like a you no know, pretty good movie. Uh, and she's good in that. But she's also in the Wonder Woman movies. She's like the the lady who trains Wonder Woman to be good oh. at sword fighting stuff. So Robin Wright oh, is her mom. I have mom. seen her in that. And then that's pretty much the only thing. Uh, or or is she? No, she's um, Wonder Woman's mom. Yeah. Oh. In uh, in the Wonder because Woman. Because I have movies. seen her. Yeah, she, I think she's great. And um, I also. I uh, think she's incredibly pretty. Like, uh, yeah. just there are some people who are just naturally graceful and just have really pretty face. And I, that's what I think yeah. Connie Nielsen has. So. Yeah, I thought her character was boring and was given nothing to do, but I thought she did a perfectly good job with the little she was given to do. <laughs> I think she has lots to do. She gets to whisper to Mar- or Maximus. She gets to be whispered at by Commodus. Like, what is there not to love? Yeah. She gets to look pretty, but also unhappy during her brother's sexual advances. What else can you ask for in a performance? That scene, but we, we'll get to it when we're talking about it, is, oh my God. <laughs> we also have Oliver Reed as Antonius Proximo. And now I'm not sure I've actually seen him in anything, but there is a 1973 Three Musketeers in which he played Athos. Uh, he also died while filming this movie, which... I, in my opinion, this movie killed him with how terrible it was. <laughs> he, I think, 
Now, I might not be right in saying this, but I think I am, uh, that he was the first proper CGI face replacement. Yeah, I think I read something like that as well. Or that, like, yeah, that, like, they had, like, a stand-in and then, like, a CGI CGI face. of lines that he had already recorded, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then, uh, because, like, obviously there are other movies that were finished while people died. Like, for example, Brandon Lee died while making The Crow and they finished that out. But that was all stand-ins for action scenes. Yeah. They'd already filmed the um, the acting and speaking parts. Um, so I think this was the first time where they actually did it with CGI. And I, I would say it's very hard to spot the seams. Like I, I, I've watched the Corridor Crew episode on this where they have shown it. And you're like once you've had it pointed out to you. But I had watched this movie three or four times and never been able to spot this is where that's a floating head until the point you had this floating head. But like it's, it's the same as I call it the uh, Jurassic Park effect is that really, really good time spent on cgi effects look really good 20 years mm-hmm. later and mm-hmm. it's the ones that are rushed and are tried to be done on the cheap or tried to do in really quick time right that look shitty so it still looks good because they took the time and put the effort into making it look good yeah yeah, yeah. no that is that is a fair uh, statement uh i also will say uh that i think he gives a perfectly good performance and especially um, he is the sole character in the movie who is allowed to be even moderately morally complex. Um, <laughs> something else that I have opinions about and which is another reason I think this movie is not good and uninteresting is that none of the central characters have any moral complexity whatsoever. Um but Oliver Reed as a, as a, as Anto- as the as a Antonius Proximo, who's like a you know slaveholder and gladiator trainer, uh, he he does. He's a morally complex character, and I appreciate that. And it is, I think, a good performance. And just to skip a Rest couple, we'll, we'll go back to the the two people that we'll be skipping over here. But Richard Harris, um, Dumbledore himself, or second uh, first Dumbledore here, um, he and Oliver Reed in real life were best mates. And they were Aww, like, so they, if nice. you, I read um, a brilliant book about them. It's called Hellraisers. It's about mm-hmm. themselves, Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole and how the four of them were just drinking buddies and would go out mm-hmm. and drink and do all of this other stuff. And Laurence Olivier was in their like little Aww, inner circle. That's kind of delightful. And yeah, it's just, it's, it's cool. And it's nice that the two of them got to work together on his last movie because they like yeah. I, I think at that stage Peter Toole might have had a falling out with one of them so Aww. like they were the last three together and then they didn't really get back together as friends but then the death of Oliver Reed allowed Peter O'Toole and Richard Harris to make amends so it's good yeah. so at least you know it's yeah. nice of that and it, as I said and Richard Harris plays Marcus Aurelio um, and I think he's good I think he plays he's fine. a bad absentee dad very well Yep, he's fine. I have issues with the portrayal of Marcus Aurelius, but I think Richard Harris is just fine. Just like he is in the Harry Potter movies. (laughs) But he is better than Michael Gambon was. And actually, I will say it is it is kind that actually is kind of kind of sweet as well, because that they're such good friends, because while they don't actually ever have a scene together, uh, probably character of Proximo frequently references Marcus Aurelius as a person who freed him when he was itself a gl- when he was himself a gladiator. So that's that's sweet that they're friends. Yeah, it's nice. Look, I said something positive about this movie. 
It's also got uh, Derek Jacobi as uh, Senator Gracchus, who is doing his best to um, bring Commodus down from the inside as the leader of the Rebel Senate. Derek Jacobi. Okay, A, Derek Jacobi is too good for this film. If you want to see Derek Jacobi as a Roman in something that's actually good, watch I, Claudius. Um, B, my other thought about Derek Jacobi is that I think Derek Jacobi, in every single thing he is in, looks like a completely different age. And the age that Derek Jacobi actually is, is utterly irrelevant to that. Like, (laughs) I think Derek Jacobi looks in this... 40 years younger than he does in I, Claudius, which I'm pretty sure was like, what, 30 years before this Seven, in terms of when it was actually made? 75, 76, something like that. Like it's definitely yeah, in the Yeah, I 70s. think it was it 70 was, sometimes. I, so like somewhere in the 20 to 30 years range. And absolutely, Tarek Jacobi looks 35 years younger in this. Um, it's also got Jimon Hansu as Juba. Um, he's like, it's Jimon Hansu. He does what Jimon Hansu does. Yeah, I... I think his performance is totally fine. I take issue with the fact that Ridley Scott made a movie which has precisely one black character whose personality is I'm a slave and that's bad. And (laughs) he like really doesn't have anything to do. And his only purpose in being in the movie is to support the like main white dude. So I take issue with the character, but I don't blame Jaiman Hansu for that, who, as I think, given a perfectly, giving a perfectly good performance with the very little he is given. Yeah, he's given, he's been Jimon Hansu, uh, which is just the same thing he does in every movie. But you're right, he does play mystical black man. That's what he's playing. Yeah, but, you know, which is like, and, you know, and as it's not his fault, that like, that's basically like the role that they let, you know, dark skinned black men play in most movies. So, you know. And that's pretty much it. The rest of the cast is made up of just uh, random guys who, like, little bit part players. Then you'd recognize them. Like, the, if you've ever watched Doctor Who, for example, the guy who plays, um, uh, who does he play? Rembrandt. No, who cut his own ear off? Vincent Van Gogh. So the guy who plays Van Gogh is the guy who tries, he's the assassin who tries to stab um, Maximus in the back at the beginning you know mm. the, the, that's so that's right. van gogh from doctor who right so mm. stuff like that yeah and you'll see tons of british actors like small time british actors just kind of popping yeah. up in it um tigris and i'll talk about this at the time uh, later on who is the ex gladiator who comes back in the fight he's played by sven Oli thorson i think is his name who is uh um aaron schwarzenegger's best mate so like they are best friends and they've been best friends since they were back on the uh, Muscle Boy, Mr. Universe pageants together. I'm calling them pageants. I know they don't refer to them that, but that's what they are. So back from the Mr. Universe uh, circuit days, uh, Sven Oli Torsen, I think his name is. Yeah. And uh, those two were like best buddies and he's in a ton of Schwarzenegger movies. And he shows up in this as a big imposing guy. So it's kind of cool. Hmm. Um. Yeah, that's it's pretty interesting. Uh, there's a guy who plays the giant German, and he was Conan the Barbarian in like a really, really low rent Conan the Barbarian series in the late nineties. That's about it. Everyone else is just bit part, small characters. Yeah. So with that, I think we can move into the next segment where we uh, get into the plot of the film. 
and I don't have to sing because we can listen to the girls. Enumeratio. Sarah, you said it says here that you've drawn this from the Wikipedia just for the basic plot. So why don't you why don't you take us on a on a walk through what happens in this movie? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yes, yeah, yeah. The the peek behind the curtain is that uh in the interest of spending less than six years on my very long notes, what I now often do is I will draw on the Wikipedia plot summary. I will then interpolate some notes in the typed version. I also have additional handwritten notes, which are the notes I took while watching the movie. So that is uh, the kind of overarching. I, I just um, want you guys to know structure. that uh, Sarah is not shirking on the notes. There are a lot of notes because I'm going through them as you're. So if I ever sound like I'm distant, it's because I'm reading from Sarah's extensive notes, trying to figure out where I I'm think, supposed to be. I think today is like seven pages. Um, usually, also this isn't a hundred percent always the case, but I would say the length of the notes is proportionate to how angry i am about a movie yep it, that's often the case so mm-hmm. the the length of the notes for say kingdom of heaven um ridley scrott's other magnum opus uh was i think that was like a 12 pages or something it was insane <laughs> so we begin in the year 180, uh, as the film says, 180 AD. Um, I will actually just say here, because it's not really a historical accuracy thing exactly per se, but um, it is actually a pet peeve of mine when they use AD to use dating in non, for dating in non-Christian contexts. AD stands for Anno Domini in the year of the Lord, referring, of course, to Jesus. That means, first of all, that, you know, saying 180 AD is useful for us, it is not how Marcus Aurelius or Commodus or the fictional Maximus would have under would have described the year that they were in. Um, but also I do feel strongly that, okay, I understand why you'd still use that for the convenience of a modern audience, but we do have the more neutral, less overtly Jesus-y equivalent CE or common era. Um, which I feel strongly we should use. Just uh, anyway. Just a quick question on Common Era. Uh, when does it start? It starts at the same time. Like it oh. still starts like with oh. the purported birth of Jesus, which we all know is almost certainly not the year that at that like a historical Jesus was born. If there is a historical Jesus, which the answer is like eh, probably, but like you can't really prove it. Anyway, so we started one eighty. Um, one thing. I genuinely like in movies is, and I get Sarah's issue with the AD, and I, to be honest with you, I just randomly don't say AD or CE. I'll just go the year 180, and I'm done with that. That's done enough for me. But I like when they give a specific date because yeah, even with my limited knowledge of the history, and trust me on this, anybody who's listening, I will never claim to have any sort of expert knowledge on any of the history that's involved in this. I am here to watch people get their legs chopped off and their hands chopped off. And this movie does a good job of both. But I like it when they do that because then it gives me something very specific that I can go and take yeah. a look at what happened in the year 180. And it allows yeah. me, it makes me feel like, oh, I can place this in time and space, which is nice. Yeah. As opposed to other movies. Which the end stuff of like, the same movie. Yeah. <laughs> that's true uh other movies that kind of go like in the early middle ages 
or in the time of the Romans. You're like, oh, wow, I wouldn't have guessed that from the fact it's set in fucking Rome. But anyway. Yeah. I also like when they give a specific date, with the exception of I find it very silly when they give a specific date for like a like movie that is like a fantasy where all of the characters are fake and they have dragons. Like I think like Dragonheart is like, it's the year 822. And I'm like, we know what happened in the year 822 and it wasn't this. <laughs> the dragons happened there. <laughs> but also it does say 822 AD in that movie <laughs> after the dragons. Yeah. Yeah, after dragon. There we go. And that's my that's my new interpretation of what AD stands for. After dragon. So we begin, of course, with a big battle. People getting their heads chopped off, uh, whatnot. This is the uh, the battle of the Romans uh, against various Germanic tribes, uh, which are who are uh, uncritically, I would say, referred to as barbarians. Um, which is, I would, I suppose, accurate to how the Romans would have described them, but kind of questionable otherwise um and so we've got this you know big victory where of course the general maximus distinguishes himself and after this he has a nice chat with the emperor marcus aurelius uh who has this hilarious thing that like looks like a pitch tent in the middle of a battlefield but it's filled with these giant like marble busts of roman emperors which would like weigh an absolute ton and i mean to be fair like in reality there are like more permanent headquarters in various military zones but this looks very impermanent and i'm like you brought this bus to the battlefront they there is one oh, there's of, like 12 of them. There's 12 of them, but but there's one huge one, which is his own head. Yeah, and it's also like, I'm sorry, you have to have this fucking marble bust of yourself on the battlefield? Yeah. Jesus I, Christ. It is, like, first of all, this tents look class, right? Um, this guy is glamping. Like, he isn't camping. Yeah. He's glamping. And he is well looked after because, of course, he is the emperor. Um, but also, the thing about this is... It, just feels vaguely ridiculous that he would even be there. Like, I get it. And he maybe- actually uh, was. So I will say, actually, Marcus Aurelius uh, was like, this is actually is like where Marcus Aurelius died was actually quite close to the front. Yeah. But uh, no, what I'm saying Credit is I'm sure it's real. I'm sure it's realistic. I'm sure that's saying, but it just feels I mean, vaguely. don't think you're sure it's realistic about this movie. But I mean, it just feels so <laughs> stupid. Like, it's like, oh yeah, we should definitely have the president on the front line in his tent right. especially because like, he's like seems on the verge of death um well if he wasn't on the verge of death he should really not give bad news to his bad son yeah well so he chats with maximus uh he tells maximus that uh he would go is going to essentially appoint him as his successor with the agreement that maximus will as quickly as possible restore the roman republic I will have many, many more thoughts about this later. Um, Can I give one thought just before this? Uh, the battle scene at the beginning here is really well done. And I'm going to give props to Ridley Scott because he manages to make this look like an incredibly huge battlefield by using very clever angles, very clever close-ups. Um, like, for example, they show like, what appears to be 15 ballistae firing giant arrows off into the Germans that are coming down to attack them, but they only really show up uh, close-ups of them two at a time. 
it's the same too, mm-hmm. just from slightly different angles. So it right. makes it look like there's tons more. The same with the guys firing arrows. I believe they're called archers. But the guys firing arrows, he shows them from the left. He shows them from the right. He shows them from the above. It's the same 20 mm. guys. And then yeah. cuts to the Germans doing the same coming from the trees. It's probably the same 20 guys. They probably had like 20 mm-hmm. people who were able to do archery. But because they're showing it from different angles and different things and never putting the two sets in the same shot, it just means that they could make it seem like this big epic battle without actually needing to have 400 or 500 extras at any point running yeah. towards each other. And that's like, it's things like that which to me are a sign of a good director because even though I know and I've seen a, a documentary talking about this movie and how to make this movie because kind of really like this movie um it it does a great job of making it appear to be much bigger than it actually is so as an action scene and as a movie as a movie battle this is a really well done version of it especially when you actually break it down and take about what marcus or sorry what maximus does in this movie he has a horse riding scene he cuts a guy's head off and keeps his sword gets stuck in a tree he falls off his horse and then he has a one-on-one fight with two guys all right that all happens and then but because they keep doing quick cuts to two other like other guys having one-on-one it feels like this big messy battle mm-hmm. but there's probably maybe 10 people swinging swords at each other in the field hmm. but it just looks like it's so much better so in that sense i i genuinely think ridley scott did a really good job here also the score from That's Hans fair. zimmer is really well done here this piece of music i think is it's either it's called the battle i think and i think it's really mm-hmm. good and it's used in a billion and one other movies and a billion and one other trailers specifically this piece of music mm. from the battle i will talk later about some of my other thoughts about the material culture in this battle and its relationship to reality Ooh, uh, but i'm going to save that discussion for later um i think that is a fair assessment i don't care about any of the characters but i will agree that it is a well-done battle scene look i've said a third nice thing about this movie <laughs> now i'm going to say some not nice things okay so uh first of all i will also say that the Marcus Aurelius to Maximus and Maximus makes a whole big thing about the fact that, you know, he's he's from Spain. He's really a farmer. He just wants to go home to see his wife and son. Very also stereotypical. The wife and son are not named. And the fact that he keeps talking about them obviously means that they're going to die. And uh, he also there, uh, Marcus Aurelius, in addition to this restoring the Republic thing, which... I'll say more detail about later, but I will just say it right now is frankly ridiculous um, <laughs> from a historical perspective. But in addition to that, there's this whole kind of populist, we need an outsider to take back Rome from the politicians. And uh, as an American living uh, in the years after the after the Trump presidency, uh, I don't think that's aged super well as a <laughs> motif of this film. Um, the other thing that is going on in the kind of immediate wake of the battle as we kind of start to discuss these politics are uh we so we have the arrival of uh Marcus Aurelius's two children his son Commodus and his daughter Lucilla uh it is if you do not know offhand uh ambiguous as they are arriving whether they are siblings or married 
Um, I don't know why everyone is so obsessed with the idea of the prevalence and prominence of incest in the pre-modern world, um, but here we are. Uh, we already have, I think, hints of this in the early arrival. Uh, we also have a lot of ways in which I think, and I don't think this is being done critically, I think Ridley Scott is very much doing the standard tropey thing that, you know, you see in a lot of Disney films, you see in a lot of other films where the villain is marked as villainous by effeminacy and what one might call a sort of decadence. That the point is the contrast between Maximus, who's this real man who's in battle and he's got blood and he's got dirt. And then Commodus shows up and he's got fancy clothing and says, have I missed it? Have I missed the battle? And he does this like European double cheek kiss, which no other character in the movie does, which I think is a really interesting choice. Um, especially given like sort of stereotypical ways in which there's like an Anglo-American association with of continental European men with effeminacy. I think that's part of what's going on there too. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of ways in which like the coding of Commodus as a villain is relying on some gendered tropes that are pretty fucked up as well as pretty uninteresting. Um... The deal also with Commodus, essentially, as like as is portrayed in this movie, is that Marcus Aurelius, all around, great guy, great emperor, really pro-democracy, apparently, like most good Roman emperors. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But his one fatal flaw is that he's a real shit dad and yeah. <laughs> doesn't love his son enough. And we have this like ridiculous scene where Commodus like caresses the marble bust of his father because he just wants daddy to love him. And he would have been such a nice guy if daddy had loved him more. And I'll discuss more about the kind of problems with this dynamic later. But Marcus Aurelius says, look, you kind of suck. I don't want you to take over. I want Maximus to take over and then restore the Republic. And then Commodus is like, daddy, why don't you love me? I would have butchered the whole world if you'd only loved me, which is like, a stupid line. It's stupid. What does that even mean? He doesn't want him to butcher the world. What is the point of this line? He's not like, I would have been a great king if you'd only loved me. His dad doesn't want him to butcher the world. Like, he's already butchering. Any, it's stupid. So, it's then he... Then he hugs smothers him to death. He hugs smothers him to death. He's, he's a really hard hugger. Um, and he hugs his dad to death. Uh, Commodus, in that scene, I think it's the point is that he never has known how to uh, please his father and his father hasn't been able to communicate with him whether or not he's been happy with him. So when Commodus starts talking about, so he says there, you talk to me about the four virtues and they were like, you know, honesty and blah, 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 blah. And I had none of them, but I had my own virtues and you ignored them all. Right. And I think it was, Commodus's way of trying to say this like if if you'd have loved me more I would have been the man that you wanted me to be but he thinks that Marcus Aurelius wanted to conquer the world and destroy the world and murder the world but the entire point is that Marcus Aurelius has just had a conversation with his you know the good son um Maximus where he's saying I have been at war for 
17 out of the 21 years that I've been um, Caesar and I feel like I've achieved nothing and I don't want war. This war has been pointless. It's just been consolidating my borders. So it's just re-emphasizing the fact that when he offers the power to Mark or to Maximus, Maximus turns it down. It's like, no, I'd give anything to say no to you. Whereas Commodus is proving his father correct in his assessment that he's the wrong person for the job because his instant response is i would have murdered the world for you which is the exact opposite of what maximus wants so it's just meant to be a little character moment showing that maximus was the right choice commodus is the bad choice the problem is it's acted out with three pounds of ham sandwich yeah whacking phoenix's mouth where he's like i would have murdered the like that's what there's also i mean even like with the best interpretation on it it's like okay there's two thousand movies about like complicated father-son relationships like i just simply don't care and it's inaccurate so (laughs) i just i just don't care um so with dad being conveniently hug smothered to death commodus proclaims himself as the new emperor it's like, Maximus, my buddy, you want to be loyal to me? And Maximus is like, no, you definitely killed your dad. Fuck you. Yeah, he definitely. He's 100% like, nah, he murdered him. And he goes back to his. He's like, wow, what a coincidence that the second uh, your dad told you, hey, you want to not be my heir? Then he suddenly died. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And then Maximus goes back to his room after refusing it. Out comes Connie Nielsen. She slaps him and then kisses the ring. And then Quintus, uh, I, I'm going to talk about Quintus at the end, but uh, Quintus shows up and he's like, all right, sorry about this, Maximus, but we're going to have to arrest you. And Cicero, who is Maximus's, um, I was going to say handmaiden, his uh, manservant, um, offers to give him the sword. Uh, Maximus is like, no, because obviously he's never going to be able to fight his way out of the entire army. Um, despite the fact that we've just been shown that the army is almost 100% right. loyal to him, he probably wouldn't have had to fight all of them, but he wouldn't yeah. necessarily have been able to escape the Praetorian Guard, so he gets handcuffed and taken away where they're going to kill him. But what annoys me is he asks Quintus what's going to happen, and Quintus is like, your family will meet you in the afterlife. Has this been, like When was that discussed? Like, also, it doesn't make any sense. There is no reason for them to murder his family. No reason at all. You kill Maximus in the woods, and then you send a letter to his wife and son saying, sorry, he died in battle. There is no point in going to, spoiler alert, going to this farm and gratuitously murdering everybody. No, it's simply pointless. Not, so I, I assume it's just meant to be this is Commodus's overkill again, right? That's what they're trying to show. However, my big issue with it is Quintus is 100% on board. And he knows about this. He knows about this. Right. Like, there's been no discussion of it. There, we're not even shown a glance between. It's just like, arrest him, right? Or follow him. That's all come to says to him. So are we to believe that they had discussed it around? It's like, if Maximus walks off, we kill Maximus, and you go and you kill his family, right? But the important thing just is... Just like you're going to go all the way to fucking Spain to kill his family? Yeah. Just to kill his family. None of these people have any other reason to be anywhere near Spain. Especially it's so dumb. Especially with Russell Crowe, renowned Latinx actor. I mean, to be fair, like the span, 
somebody like who is yeah I mean I, I will say yeah I have um the idea of accepting Russell Crowe as Spanish is hilarious um you know they are all you know essentially like Romans at this point but you know and but still yes the idea of like like every time they're like Russell Crowe like talking about Russell Crowe they're like the Spaniard and I'm like absolutely not <laughs> um yeah so Russell Crowe manages to escape in a very good action scene um i again guys uh i'm the person who likes the action parts of these movies and want people to get stabbed in the face and this involves a dude getting stabbed in the face and if that's not good enough for you then i don't know what should be but he goes and he finds his family they've been hung uh he says crucified as well and they appear to have been burned so he shows up and goes, oh my God, my family on Dibalbi or whatever it is that he says because he's like Australian or New Zealand or whatever. But he gets there. No, sorry. He's, he's Spanish. Spanish. Oh, my paella. But he gets there and <laughs> I can't do a Spanish accent, Sarah. You know this. You've been in Spain with me. Um, oh, I know. <laughs> Tapas. <laughs> that's how it's pronounced. Is how Ollie pronounces the word tapas. <laughs> no, that's how I pronounce it to very nice Spanish waitresses. <laughs> like some tapas. <laughs> because that's how much game i've got but he uh he shows up his wife and and son have been killed some people would say for a jane but they're not characters so some people might i mean so they are not characters they never have names in addition to never having names we know nothing about their personality we have no idea why maximus would like this woman i mean you know you sort of assume i guess you like your kid or most people in theory are supposed to but we have no idea why he gives a shit about his wife other than that she is in the two shots we see of her perfectly attractive. But otherwise, we know literally nothing about her. We also know nothing about this kid, other than the fact that, you know, he's eight. Like, yeah. we know nothing about his personality either. Um, and what was the other thing I was going to say um, about these people? Um, oh, and just really, like, they're entirely there, you know, classic fridging, except for the fact that they're not characters enough for the audience to care about them. But they're solely there to provide this motivation for Maximus, but doesn't even make any sense and seems deeply unnecessary and gratuitous, given that, arguably, I would say, the fact that Commodus murdered his mentor and father figure, Marcus Aurelius, which at least is plot-relevant... And necessary for the forward motion of events, arguably, that seems like sufficient motivation, actually, for him to want revenge. Him, you know, which is a subsequent theme. Like, the killing of the wife and son just seems thoroughly unnecessary. Um, Also... I simply do not need to see that much snot. Like, haven't, like, by now I feel like maybe we finally accepted, like, in the wake of Cats, that snot doesn't count as acting. Um, <laughs> uh, and I feel like that's, like, what we have, right? Like, Russell Crowe is supposed to be very upset. And the way we know Russell Crowe is very upset about his dead wife and dead son is that he's, like, snotting all over their blackened feet. He snots a lot in this uh, scene. And I just it, simply don't need to see this. Yeah, I have to agree. Um, this is like the overacting part. There's like snot and spittle and stuff. But it, it's bad. But he manages to bury them and then he collapses and then he gets picked up by a slave owner who is just like randomly walking a caravan with like giraffes and slaves. And he's just like wandering through fields in Spain apparently but then like walks from there. Yeah, so first of all like yeah, Russell Crowe walked from 
um, Germany. from Germany to Spain. He rode several um, horses to death. That's right. He he rode yeah he rode some horses to death, and then he like walked a chunk of the way. And then we have these uh, slave traders who are based in North Africa and who are just wandering like rural Spain, like grabbing like collapsed men off the ground. So that's silly. Um, and then we get to North Africa. We're in the uh, Roman province of Mauritania Caesariensis, um, which is, I believe, um, essentially what is now like Algeria. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And I'll have more to say about this later. For now, I'm just going to say, wow, the Orientalism. The Orientalism is intense. The other thing I will say about it is that so we have this uh, gladiator, this gladiator trainer who ends up buying him. So this is uh, Oliver Reed's character, Proximo. And when we first meet Proximo, uh, Proximo is talking to the slave trader and is bitching because the slave trader sold him these two giraffes and the giraffes aren't mating. So he starts whining about how they are queer giraffes. And this seems so much like late 90s, early 2000s gay panic as opposed to a thing an actual Roman person who bought giraffes would say, which I feel like would probably be the actual rational, normal thing that somebody would say in this context, which is, you sold me sick giraffes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, it's it's played off as a joke. Like, uh, you, sorry, you sold me gay giraffes. But why is the joke there? It just no, that's feels what I'm like, like totally the, unnecessary. It's because he grabs the other guy by the nuts and he's like squeezing them and he's like... You saw me gay giraffes. I you, like I wanted them to mate, and they won't mate. They're just walking around. But like maybe they're not in heat. Maybe they're not, like he doesn't put any effort into learning. Like or also just like I I resent the fact that like what this is like what is this for? Like the like is this like queer representation in this movie? Is like a joke about gay giraffes in this fucking movie that like doesn't have like a single actual queer person? Like it's just I I found it really obnoxious. And fit into me, actually, with the fact that while Commodus um, is not portrayed as having uh, any kind of homosexual relationships in this film because he just wants to fuck his sister, um, it also, like, really fits into me with the fact that, like, this film, like most of Ridley Scott's films, is very deeply invested in a certain kind of extremely stereotypical masculinity, and that with that, we have to have this kind of statement of, like, ew, gay, yeah. With um, zero gay people. Uh, yeah. There, I also think Ridley Scott hates women in addition, which uh, I will get it to more later. There is another mention of gay later on because um, Oliver Reed asks Maximus, does he want a girl? And when Maximus doesn't, oh, he yes. says, do you want a boy? And at least he throws that out. With no, it doesn't seem like he's judging him. He's just like, do you want a boy? Just like he just throws it out there. But that's about as good as it gets. Like, and that's also, I think, actually not that great, right? Because first of all, it's something that's put, but like, it's put in the mouth of a character who is presented as being like kind of morally ambiguous, which still like then leaves in the possibility, right, that we're acknowledging the existence of human as well as giraffe same-sex preferences, but the only person who acknowledges that is somebody who is, like, presented as being sort of, like, morally flexible. Um, And, of course, you know, like, of course, we can't have Maximus actually, like, want a boy. And also, it's, like, in a context where the only situation in which we're acknowledging it is in this situation of... um, 
uh, uh, like, but the only context in which we're acknowledging it is a possibility of essentially like hiring sex workers. Mm-hmm. To, so yeah, like we're not... not acknowledging the possibility of any actual like queer relationships. They get bought by Oliver Reed's character, Proximo, and he wants them to fight in gladiator duels. So like local ones. Like I, the way I'm watching this, it feels like wrestling. Like it's like. WWE wrestling and yeah. you're no you're on the indie circuits and if you want to get to the WWE or whatever the other big one that's in America the AEW whatever it is if you want to get into or WCW I don't know what they're actually called I just for people listening I'm not a massive wrestling fan but it's like that you know you want to get to the big ones in Rome but you have to do your small little indie circuits first so they're fighting in these smaller venues and I am genuinely confused by something in this they show up. They do a little bit of sword practice with some wooden swords. Maximus refuses to fight in the practice. And then later on, he's shown refusing to fight again. Proximo comes down and says, everyone's going to fight. You might not want to fight, but everyone wants to fight because when you get out there, you're going to hear the roar of the crowd and you're going to want to fight. And Maximus shows no response. He doesn't seem to care. He's just sitting, he's like, cutting off his tattoo that he's got to say he was in the marines the roman marines and then he goes also out. like can you even do that anyway yeah I, I don't think so he was literally cutting up like i think he was just he would end up with a huge scar so he was yeah. just cutting the flesh off and it would like he's already got a big cut up there anyway which had maggots on it at some other point but he uh he gets out anyway what goes into the arena he's attached to jimon hansu and then himself and jimon hansu kill like five guys if if he wanted to die, which is what it implies up until right. that point, because he, he was going to let the German guy knock his head off with a wooden right. sword. He was actively avoiding picking up weapons and stuff. But then as soon as he got into the arena, he's like, yeah, okay, I'm, and now I'm killing people. So are we to believe that that speech from Proximo motivated him to get out there and start killing? Because it didn't seem to. But he I goes mean, out there and he starts killing again. And I mean, the- okay, so I have two thoughts about this. One is that, I mean, when it actually is like you are really, you know, going to die, which is arguably like not what is the case in a practice, you know, I can see the argument that like the ring is different, like where there's an actual real threat to your life is different from practice. What I actually think is going on is that I think Ridley Scott wants to have his cake and eat it too. I think he wants to portray this character as not bloodthirsty, as not desiring to participate constantly in violence, but also wants to show him being really, really good at violence and battle because that's what he wants to make a movie about because why else would you make a movie about a gladiator? <laughs> yeah, but no, this I, is one of the many flaws that I think this movie has the, and one of the many reasons and like one of the many issues that I have with like the character of Maximus so my, my issue is just that I get it right you're in the heat of your, the arena but it, it is genuinely implied that he wants to die at that point he was going to give up like you have Gmon Hansu talking to him while he's drifting off not yet you will not see them yet first of all Gmon Hansu doesn't know he's got a wife and kid at that stage so he's right. saying you won't you will see them later you will get them later and you're like okay all right that's a bit weird and then he asks mm. him, like it's after the scene he's like oh you have wife and kid and you're like sorry you were saying that you right. were to see them and like so all of this sort of stuff 
is kind of confusing at this point. But just to go back to the action scenes, we get two uh, regional fights with Maximus. This first one, where again he was acting like he wanted to die and had a death wish, but then suddenly turns into Maximus in the arena. And himself and Jimon Hansu and the big German guy all managed to survive. German guy uh, cuts off the hand of the guy who was chained to him. And they take out the, the other gladiators in the arena. And then we cut back several months later. And Maximus is the star attraction where there's five people waiting in the arena for him. And he walks out. All of these action sequences are really well done. Like they, they feel visceral. Every blow feels like it would cause pain. Again... It's not done with quick cuts. Like there was a lot of action movies in that time of like hand fighting and sword fighting that you couldn't really see what was going on. I could pretty much draw a map of everything that happened in that arena in any of those fights. And I think I'd get a pretty good representation of what was happening and where people were standing. So again, from that point of view, and Sarah's not going to like me saying this, the action scenes are really well directed because you get a real sense of what everybody's doing at any given time and it feels visceral. It also leads to the famous moment, the moment from the trailers, the thing that almost everybody quotes when it comes to this movie. There are two quotes. Does I am Maximus Decimus Meridius, leader of the legions, father of a murdered child, husband of a murdered wife, that bit. But also he stands, throws a sword away and he says, yeah, nameless wife. And he goes, are you not entertained? Now, Sarah, I ask you, were you not entertained? No, because, okay, so I I see everything you're saying, right? And I, I will grant you that they are well-directed and well-choreographed action scenes. For me, I think that's important if you're doing an action movie, but I also think that it's still valuable to make you care about the characters. Still nothing has actually made me care about Maximus. I think he is boring. I don't think he has a personality. Um, The only thing I know about him is that he was in a war and like, he's very good at war, but like, he doesn't love war. He loves the farm and his family, but now his family's dead. And we know nothing about his family and why he's sad about them being dead, other than the fact that I guess you're supposed to be sad when your wife and kid die. But neither of them have a personality either. So, or even a name. So like, it doesn't really hit me emotionally. It also doesn't really, I don't know. And then we also have like, okay, so then we have like these other people, right? And we're supposed to like care about the fact that these people are developing camaraderie. But the German guy, we know next to nothing about. Uh, Jaiman Hansu, Juba, I think is his name. The only thing we know about him is that he, you know, has this wife and kid and he misses this wife and kid and that he like gives this like magical Negro style like speech where he like talks to, you know, talks Russell, talks to Russell Crowe about like the afterlife. And it's just like, I, I just feel like they've like Ridley Scott has completely failed to make me invested in these people. And so, okay, we can have an action scene, but I feel like the action scene would be equally interesting if you watch the action scene completely alone without the context of the film. And I think if that is the case, then it is ultimately a failure. No, I, yeah, again, I, I'm not disagreeing with you in any of those points there uh if you're not feeling emotionally invested in any of the characters there's not really a lot to hagen and juba to make you emotionally invested like, in them yeah. like 
that what possibly could there be right um yeah yeah so at the same time that they're in these regional circuits in the uh, the indies of wrestling um commodus has announced that down in the wwe land that he's going to have 150 days of games um he has a blow up in front of the senate where the senate are saying like you need to look at sanitation he's like don't you fucking tell me what to do i am the senate as he said um in his best palpatine and um he is basically i am the senate, I am the senate. and then he announces 150 days of games which is obviously going to attract people who have gladiators to fight in the games and we have oliver reed talking to maximus he's like hey maximus you're pretty good I was also pretty good. But if you want to become a free man, you have to be better than what you are. You can't just be good in fighting, Maximus. You also have to get the crowd behind you. And once again, this is WWE wrestling. You can't just be good at an in-ring fighting person. You have to also be able to give a promo. And you also have to be able to get the crowd on your side. That's wrestling. That's effectively what he's describing. And... We end up with them going to Rome, but mostly Maximus is like, yeah, I'll go to Rome. Do you think there's a chance I'll get to meet the Emperor? Because I'd really like to meet the Emperor, like you met the Emperor. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And like Proxima was like, yeah, yeah, if you do it well, you might get to meet the Emperor. How does he not pick up that Maximus wants to kill the right. Emperor? Like, Right, he's so, yeah. So I have several thoughts. One thought is that the kind of WWE sort of like get the crowd on your side thing in my opinion, is a mediocre version of, I I mean, this came out first, I believe, but like, I think like it's a thing that is, will be done significantly better in A Knight's Tale, where also you can buy the crowd being on his side more because Heath Ledger has a personality, uh, which Russell Crowe does not. So, you know, there's that. Um, Yes. I really like A Night's Tale. I genuinely really like A Night's Tale. And I had a great time talking about it. And Dawn was on the podcast with us when we talked about Night's Tale. There is nothing in Night's Tale which is done better than this movie. I completely disagree. I think A Night's Tale is a significantly better movie than this. In every way, actually. There is nothing that I think is done better in this movie than is done in A Night's Tale. With the possible exception, I will grant you, of choreography of action sequences. Otherwise, nothing. Certainly the dialogue in this isn't good. God, the dialogue is atrocious. Okay, so to continue, I'm however, just with trying, some to, thoughts trying to remember all of those awesome Knight's Tale dialogue sections. Actually, yeah, I think like I think that um, are you not entertained? I think that's a dumb line. I think Paul Bettany's speech as Je- like as Jeffrey Chaucer um uh, is like brilliant <laughs> actually i will stand by this i, will I, know, I know you will i have absolutely no doubt you're going to stand by this other thoughts so when Commodus gets into rome there's this whole like you know thing with his like triumphal entrance into rome um which uh, like first of all has like a lot of kind of um Echoes of Triumph of the Will, which I kind of feel like, with the exception of the movie A Lion King, is lazy as a way of designating somebody as villainous. Um, it it, it works in A Lion King, otherwise, fuck off. Um, <laughs> Just not a, everybody's Hitler. Lion King, uh, Hans Zimmer did the score for it as well. As yeah, movie. he did a better job in that. 
did a good job in this movie. Uh, okay, I just I just don't think the score is interesting in this. Like, there's nothing wrong with it. It's all perfectly, like, decent music, etc. I just, like, it's, okay, like, there's dramatic music when we're supposed to be dramatic, and when, like, we're supposed to be, like, ooh, and they're supposed to, and there's, like, sad music when we're supposed to be sad. And it's just, like, like okay, it's it's a perfectly serviceable score that tells you how you're supposed to feel at different stages Wait, of the movie. hold on a second. Don't forget the bit where Juba and, uh, and... What's his name? Hayden and um, uh, Maximus sing Hakuna Matata. Like, that happens in this movie. If only. Hakuna Matata. Yeah. You know what? Those three characters, they had personalities, unlike any of these three men. Nobody in this movie except for Commodus has a personality. Um, And Commodus' personality is that he is an incestuous creep. Okay. Um, What if just Maximus' dead wife is called Nala? I'm going to call her that for the rest of the podcast. Yeah, that's what um, we did. Because, well, she has to show up for the scene at the very yeah. end, so. Yeah. Okay. Other thoughts is that we also have this bit, right, where so, so you know, he has this triumphal entrance and, you know, people act like they're happy to see him. And then he, like, says something to one of the senators, like, oh, I appreciate my loyal subjects. I hope they weren't too expensive. Uh, first of all, as I'll note later, Commodus actually was genuinely relatively popular at various points of the Roman people. And B... It's, like, just this weird, like, they just have to make him just, like, really evil. And, like, everybody has to be, like, really unhappy with him. Because, like, if the crowd's on your side, like, it's just, like, weird populism, right? Where if the crowd is on your side, you can't be bad, really. Right? Which, again, is a thing that hasn't aged well in terms of the kind of weird populism of this movie, right? I mean, I feel like if this movie is made now, it's like, oh, the guy who is, like, the kind of, like, hero with the crowd on his side, like, that's actually a kind of, like potentially like dangerous horrible person cough trump cough um <laughs> but instead right so it's like okay you have to apply that like everybody who seems happy about the interest in covetous is like bought and it's like it's much more complicated than that right it's that like okay yeah people are like basically like your standard person who doesn't necessarily pay like a ton of attention to politics and also like at this point very early in Commodus's sole reign like has no idea that like he's you know gonna turn out to like be pretty shitty like yeah why wouldn't you be perfectly happy like this guy is coming back and there's a fun parade and they usually get free food like everybody's like pretty there's like a pretty decent amount of like there's a lot of goodwill yeah Especially because, like, there's not really a mass movement to reestablish a republic. Yeah, especially so, since he's a new emperor as well. Like, so yeah, they're, and they're, also like they liked the old emperor just fine. Yeah, and like this is his son, and like he's been you know co-ruling as I'll talk about later, like with his father for several years. Like, there's no particular reason for them to be like disposed to dislike him, and in fact, they didn't. So it just like feels very much like we we have to have this like very morally simplistic narrative where ultimately even though we're also going we're like sort of half-heartedly trying to make a statement about like the crowd and their propensity toward violence we're also essentially saying that like we're accepting the crowd as like a moral as like an arbiter of morality and assuming that ultimately if the crowd is on your side then you are in the right yeah which you know which is fundamentally not how anything works. No, it definitely doesn't. Um, I have a question about the games part of this there. Would they have been this elaborate? 
Uh, they would potentially have been fairly elaborate. Like they do have like not every single game at every single moment, um, but they do hold games which have like mock pitched battles and they do like hold games like where they have like the animals and stuff like that. So it varies. There's like a bit like this, like the film probably airs on the side of showing like the more elaborate versus the the less elaborate stuff. Um, but there are certainly like the, the kinds of things that they have in this film actually like are the kinds of things actually that like were featured in games that Commodus sponsored. All right. Perfect. So that leads us into what the first day that Maximus is in the big games, right? So they get down, uh, Proximo comes in and we see him talking to another character. Um, it's not Gracchus at this point. It's the guy with the cool eyebrows who puts on the red. Oh, yes. Red I have sensation. no idea what his name is. Like but Procto I think I just wrote in my like, notes. I just wrote eyebrows. Yeah. With like, it's like, like underlined like six times. It is something like Procto or something like that, right? But he is there and he's basically, um, yeah, it doesn't matter. You're in here. You get to play the uh, the the character. The Ginians, I think maybe it is. Uh, yeah, in, in it's the, the like yeah, it's like the recon. Yeah, it's yeah. the battle between. It's like one of the big battles between Rome and Carthage. And they basically get. Uh, they're meant to get decimated, right? But obviously, Maximus is a general, and he stands in the ring for the first time, despite the fact that he's been traveling around with these guys for a long time, and he asks the group of men that he has just spent several months with, and he says, "Are any of you soldiers?" And a few of them nod their heads. You can hear people going, yes, 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 yes. But one of them definitely says, yes, I served with you. Yes! Isn't that Hagen? He's like, yeah, I served with you. It's like, dude, really? You haven't figured that one out yet? That's what I'm saying. He says, in a specific battle. Yes. And I went, wait. Did, I'm, and I rewinded to, to see. I went, like, that couldn't have been. He says it. Yes, I served with you and blah, blah, blah. So some of them already know he's Maximus. But yeah, no, it's so it's, yeah. I mean, it's like, that is another issue that I have is that I actually think in addition to the writing being lazy and boring, I also think there are a number of internal inconsistencies, which probably reflects the fact that we have all these kind of side characters that I think like Ridley Scott fundamentally does not care about. Like, I don't think he cares about Hawken. I don't think he cares about Juba. Like, no, not at all. So they have, they, they're, Maximus says to him, stick together. We'll stay in the middle. There's a couple of guys who don't listen to him. Obviously, the ones who are non-soldiers, they get cut off on the outside of the ring. These guys are driving around them in chariots, which have large blades around the outside. Like a real throwback to, we're talking Ben-Hur-style chariot races and blades on the outside. And a real throwback to Greece and Greece Lightning when they have that race with the other guys and they put the, the wheels on their chariots, right? Um, but it's a really, again... I have to give credit to the action sequence here. It's another sequence because they show a shot of the Colosseum from above. They show that it's an oval. They show that the um, guys on the chariots are driving around the outside. And all of the shots from a distance show the guys in the middle staying in their little shield wall formation so that they can't get shot with the arrows. They can't get javelins thrown at them. It's the ones that are on the outside. Again, Maximus showing that the soldiers, the Roman soldiers are the guys who follow orders and do the job properly or do what he asked them to do will end up surviving. And they start taking out the chariots one by one, taking out the guys in the golden armor and women in the golden armor one by one. And then Maximus remembers and 
genuinely surprised Ridley Scott didn't let us Ridley Scott Ridley Scott didn't have a scene of him going win the crowd in his head and he goes over and he gets on the whitest of white horses that somehow survived the crash and then rides around the arena cuts off two people's heads and then raises his sword to the sky and excellent action sequence and anybody who even if you've never seen gladiator the vast majority of people who are into any sort of action movie will have seen this scene at some stage will have seen clips of it or pieced together so yeah it's really well done really well acted out the responses from the crowd seem real like you're not having people going ooh at moments where i don't think people would go ooh so yeah again really well done and it leads to what i thought didn't come till later in the movie is the scene where commodus as emperor comes down to meet maximus i genuinely thought there were two previous or pitched battles in the arena before the one-on-one tigris fight but yeah it feels like it comes really quick like yeah uh everybody knows that he's the spaniard if he hadn't fought in the Rome arena, like nobody's going to know right. about this guy fighting. Oh, this Spaniard from the North African smaller indie leagues. Right, like, who cares? Yeah, they're not going to know. Like, how did the message get to them in the first place? They say right. you're the god of war because you, you're fighting these guys in North Africa or Tunisia or Algeria, yeah. wherever it happens to be. So, yeah, it just that doesn't really ring true to me. But at the same time, excellent action sequence. Commodus comes down. He tries talking to Maximus. Maximus has given him like two syllable answers, you know, read Russell crowing it up. He turns to walk away after being told, don't turn your back to the emperor. He walks away. Commodus starts throwing a hissy fit. And Maximus turns around, takes off his helmet and says, you know, I am Maximus Decimus Meridius, blah, 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 blah. Big famous speech. Uh, and then, which is essentially a mediocre version of Inigo Montoya and the Princess Bride. That's effectively what it is. It is Inigo Montoya's uh, speech. Um, you know, a really overrated speech because he says it too many times in the movie. But he's if he'd said it only twice, it would have been so much better. But he's all the time saying it. And um, but anyway, effectively at that point, um, Maximus should be dead. Like. There's no re like he, yeah. I I get the crowd are like woo, 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 let them live let them live, he's the emperor he doesn't give a crap. The next day also, he literally says they love violence. It's like day twenty of the games. There's still another hundred and twenty days for him to get back on their side. Like right, I mean, and also it's like honestly, okay, you think the crowd's gonna turn on you if you murder him? First of all, you're the emperor. Do you really care? Second, have him stabbed in his quarters that night. Like, have him stabbed in his sleep. Um, So that doesn't really make sense. Um, Oh, I do want to note, actually, that uh, another concern I have in terms of the fact that I think this movie, in addition to not making sense at many points, um, I think is tacitly homophobic, actively misogynist, and actively kind of racist. Um, I am so uncomfortable with the fact that they get into Rome, and specifically Juba, Jaiman Hansu's character, is a character who is selected to marvel at the architectural, architectural wonders of the West. Like, first of all, actually, it doesn't make any sense because they've all been in, like, Romanized North Africa, which has, like, plenty of, like, Coliseums in fact, Roman and... architecture, yeah. set, which I'll talk about more later. 
A, there's that. B, like, okay, even if you say, like, all right, this is a character who was originally from sub-Saharan Africa, like, that actually, like, there's no particular reason, actually, like, why it would seem more remarkable, even if you skip the North Africa bit, there's no particular reason why Rome would seem more remarkable to somebody who is, like, who is, like, from sub-Saharan Africa versus somebody who's, like, from, like, the German territories, like, and so it just feels very racially charged that Juba is the character who has to deliver that line. Uh, so I have a lot of concerns about that. Um, we then have the kind of first of our sort of bits with Lucilla indicating that she's sort of switching sides. Uh, first of all, it's made, I would say, already at this point relatively clear uh, when she like comes to see him that Lucilla's only Lucilla doesn't care about politics, right? Lucilla's motivations are that she's worried about her kid because women be moms and that she wants to fuck Maximus because uh, like, why would you even have a woman if she doesn't want to sleep with the main character? Um, <laughs> Sarah, I don't like there's loads of reasons to have women. I mean, yeah, there are, but not in this movie. I can't like, believe how misogynistic your views on the world are. And this is like, this is a big issue that I have with uh, Ridley Scott is that in the vast majority of his films, with actually a notable exception being Alien, but I will note that I believe like Sigourney Weaver's character was originally written as a man and then somebody, they like just decided to cast Sigourney Weaver. So I actually think that's probably like the only reason that he like accidentally stumbled into having written a decent female character. Do you know what? Do you know Um, what would be really interesting? is if it turns out they cast Sigourney Weaver to save money. Genuinely, because she was an unknown actress. And And also could pay women less. She would pay women less. So she was unknown and women get paid less in general. So what if that's the reason Sigourney Weaver gets to make Ellen Ripley the coolest, badass woman of all time? And it's like, yeah, it's just because we were trying to save cash. Ridley Scott, you need to address this. Yeah, but in general, like you should this, get him like, on the podcast. I should, but yeah, Gladiator, Kingdom of Heaven, Robin Hood, all oh. three of those movies. Yeah, have, oh, I'm going to get to the other one in a minute. All three of those are you know big sweeping historical epics. They have one woman in the point of the woman, uh, you know, not counting like dead nameless wife. You have one woman, and the point of the woman is that she wants to hook up with the main character. I guess actually Robin Hood, there are the uh, the women in the court. So you like the Eleanor of Aquitaine character is like the one woman who's there because she like who like has a point other than wanting to sleep with a man. Yeah, um, but her her problem is that her son. But she's been, hooking, she's momming. Yeah, she's his his her son has been hooking up with all the women. Yeah, so you know, so uh, but you know, but like. There's that problem. And, you know, then there's his, you know, most recent uh, medieval movie where the point of the woman character is to get raped. So I'm not sure that's an improvement. Um, um, Oh, and then she has some other women who are there so they can tell her they think she's lying about being raped. (laughs) So that's another point that a woman can have in a movie. (laughs) Um, um, So, you know, she comes and, like, you know, does this thing. And he also, like, is gratuitously an asshole to her. And also it, like, it doesn't make any sense. She's like, hey, I want you to, like, meet this, like, senator friend of mine because, like, then we can all, like, work together, right, to take down Commodus. And he's like, no, I don't want to. It doesn't make any sense. If he, what he wants is revenge, it seems like actually, like, obviously what you should do is, like, 
talk to these fucking people who are like in actual like positions where like they could get you to the emperor. Like, what is your plan here? Yeah, except it's, it just seems like a way to make the movie longer. It does, except it turns out that he was right. Well, no, he wasn't actually. I mean, he was able, like in the set, like only in so like the reason, the only reason it didn't work is because um, somebody else betrays them. Well, sort of by accident, like the dumb kid. Well, not even the dumb kid. Like the other guy, um, the, one of the other senators goes and tells Commodus. Well, he's suspicious. He's not like, but he's not involved in the conspiracy, that but, one. But that's what I'm saying. He's suspicious of it. And that's what, that's what Russell Crowe's character, I, I can't believe I just forgot Maximus. Like, but uh, Russell Crowe's character. Also uh, that name, Maximus, because I'm the Maximum Man. Like, it's so dumb. It's not even like a Roman first name. Like, oh my God, this movie is so dumb, Ollie. It's dumb. It's, really it's dumb and unsubtle and boring. <laughs> well, I am going to get to the boring part. But we, before we get there, uh, yes. I mean, Max- so, okay, like, he does turn out to be right in the sense that, like, it doesn't work out. And once you get the politics involved, like, people start talking to the emperor and whatnot. But otherwise, like, what's his plan? He's just going to, like, sit in the arena and wave at Commodus from above? Like, he's not doing anything. I think his plan is for Commodus like genuinely what I think is going through his head is Commodus is going to come down give me a wooden sword is going to put his hand on my shoulder like he told Proximo and Maximus is going to kill him at that point well he's not going to now because he already like announced like hi I'm Maximus I swear revenge so obviously now Commodus isn't going to do that that was a good plan before he missed his chance but as we see he does get his chance to kill. But anyway, that's beside the point. So Maximus gets back in. Now, this is, again, we're talking, I've been, I've said this three or four times, WWE style. The next fight scene is a one-on-one fight scene with the only guy who's undefeated in gladiatorial thing, this guy called Tigris or Tigris. Um, I think he's French, a Gaul. And he comes into the thing after five years of retirement. Now, as I said, I've been mentioned WWE. This is bringing back Hulk Hogan right. to take on The Rock or Stone Cold Steve Austin after five. He's been gone for five years and now he's back and the crowd's going wild. Who are they going to be fans of? Do you know who they're going to be fans of? The younger, fitter, modern guy, right? Right. And also, it's hilarious because this guy is wearing this helmet that, like, simply it is not believable that he can see through this thing. No, and this guy is played by, as I said, um, Sven Oli Thorsons, and he is Arnold Schwarzenegger's best buddy. Um, but he is there, and he gets into the arena, and there are tigers around the outside, and the tigers are on chains. Anytime they go to attack Maximus, they're allowed to get close to him and try and swipe at him. Anytime they go to swipe at Tigris, they get pulled back. And the audience can see this. Like, the audience yeah. are reacting negatively to this. But for some reason, this is okay for Commodus. Right, which happen. is ridiculous. Yeah. Like, like it, I mean, it's just inconsistent. It's it's this list of inconsistency. However, the one-on-one fight section is pretty good. Um, Maximus does stab a tiger uh, with a sword and then stab it a second time. Just for the record, 
he would have been crushed by that tiger lying on top of him. Like right. tigers are upwards of 300 to 600 pounds, right? So like yeah. a 600 pound tiger lying on top of you, you're not rolling out from underneath it, Maximus. Right. It's broken your legs. Like that's what would have happened in that yeah. scene, right? And even if it laid one claw on you, you're getting ripped to shreds, right? We were yeah. all going for the tiger in this. We were like, ah, kill them both. But obviously yeah, it doesn't. I've... Yeah, uh, but I have several tiger-related notes, though. I have several tiger-related tiger like tigers, notes. yes, I know. First of all, I'm 100% rooting the tiger, both to win the battle uh, and also to win the award for best actor because I think the tiger is doing a better job acting than Russell Crowe. I believe that tiger wants to eat Russell Crowe. I find that very believable. I believe that more than I believe that, that Russell Crowe is a Roman gladiator. So I think, you know, 10 out of 10 tiger performance, best I actor. Think, I think the I mean, I get, okay, best supporting actor. I understand he can't pull, you know, I understand that would be category fraud for the tiger to get nominated for, uh, for best lead actor. There's two tigers in this movie, uh, in, in this scene. One of the tigers, I think, is overacting. And I think the other one is really showing the repressed, subtle emotions that are going on with yeah. being a tiger in the gladiatory yeah. arena. My other tiger-related thought is, um, I will note, so, you know, the film has at the end, right, the, like, we use the tigers and like we did our best and like obviously all violence against the tigers was simulated right mm-hmm. i to be perfectly honest in the year 2000 i don't actually understand why they needed to use real tigers at all which seems as opposed to cgi um and i say this given that like i know that there's like a pretty you know that there's like constant improvements right but like i mean like you know, Lord of the Rings is only a year after this. And it was actually probably, these were probably being filmed at around the same time. And that is like excellent CGI that has held up really well. I really do think that if they'd wanted to CGI a tiger, like completely, they actually could have figured that out. And um, I think it is like, but like the actual use of tigers, even if the violence itself is simulated, there's no way that wasn't extremely unpleasant, both for the tigers and for the actors. Like, I mean, as you said, right, like a tiger just being on top of him, like that could kill him. Like being having to like act in a scene with live tigers sounds terrifying. And, you know, they're wild animals. You can't perfectly control them. And as I said, it also sounds extremely unpleasant for the tigers. Yeah, it's as I said, I, I understand why they didn't do it. And just haven't seen a lot of CGI animals from around about that time. I don't think they could have pulled it off. Um, just because, like for example, Mighty Joe Young came out two years later, and it is about a giant ape, and it looks ridiculous. Like I mean, I, it, the entirety of the budget, sci-fi or the special effects budget, etc., would have gone to just making that ape. It looks silly. Like any time the ape moves, you're just looking at it going, that's that's stupid life right so maybe they tried and just couldn't pull it off but you're right that really shouldn't be like if you can't there's no reason to put the tiger in like if like, yeah I, mean, I just like it like would it have looked good i don't know very pot you're right very possibly not but also i just like i i think like ethically i just don't think like that's an acceptable reason to put a tiger through that or actually to put like your actors through that but see that's what i'm getting at is it doesn't need to be a tiger. If you just want to have pits open up with spikes in them and then they yeah. push over the lid again when the other guy gets close to the spikes. Like, it right. does the same thing. It's showing them doing cheap, yeah. but they want to go, tigers, he's got tigers. Right. 
Grant. Okay, thank you. I didn't realize yeah. we were again slipping into WWE territory there. Who's this right. guy? This guy's mankind. What's he like? Well, he's the worst of mankind. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, it is also, so he like also, you know, has this thing, right? So he defeats Tigris and then, but, you know, is like, like chooses to, you know, the whole crowd is calling for him to kill him. And then he like decides he's going to be merciful. Um, I simply don't find the crowd switching sides and being like, yeah, Maximus the Merciful, believable as like a quick transition from the kind of bloodthirsty initial response. Like, I think it is much more likely that the crowd would, just, would like be annoyed that they weren't getting the like, you know, climax as it were of the whole thing. Um, so I don't think that's believable. But, you know, again, the crowd has to be, po- you know, populism. The crowd has to be on the side of the good guy. Again, hasn't aged well. Um we also, I think at some point, you know, in like another interaction that he's got with Commodus in there, we get the line from Commodus, which is something like, your son squealed like a girl when they nailed him to the cross and your wife moaned like a whore when they ravaged her over and over again. And it's just like, it's a gross line. It's an unnecessary line. And it fits really weirdly with the way that, okay, so you have this line, right? And so Commodus, the villain, right, is insulting this like this his son by like implying that he was like as an eight-year-old effeminate whereas like at the same time then we have like Ridley Scott the director is insulting Commodus by presenting him as effeminate and that also like we're using this like you know oh like your wife like enjoyed getting raped as like an insult whereas like simultaneously in this movie with like our one actual woman character what like makes her good is the fact that she like is like has like the like sexual purity to withstand the advances of like her creepy of like her creepy brother's creepy incest and so like it's just this weird vibe where Commodus is like the villain for like reference, you know, using like effeminacy as an in- and like sexual like impurity as an insult, but also like that's exactly what Ridley Scott is doing in this film, essentially. Yeah, and it as I said it's just it's a weird scene, especially since at no point like it doesn't further Commodus's plot at that point like if communist goes down to face him one-on-one again right he's standing in the in the ring of uh, soldiers right and it's like he's trying to get maximus angry right maximus would kill communist with his bare hands in 10 seconds five seconds right? yeah there's a ring of soldiers around him he'd have communist dead in that time so yes maximus yeah. would have gone out so this is another reason why maximus at this point starts slowing down and he's like walking i was like i'm not rising you know i'm not rising to the bait and he gets away uh Cumulus actively lowers his own position because those soldiers who are all standing right. around hear him being a dickhead to maximus yeah and then maximus walking off and then later on that same group of soldiers are the ones who are out with quintus at the end and quintus tells him hey nobody give him a sword this guy brought this on himself right but at the same time it's still your emperor. If your emperor calls for a sword, you give him a sword. Like You're right, Ollie. Those are stupid things about this movie. Yeah. Sarah, I can mm. point out the bad things mm-hmm. about the really good movie I just watched, but I don't have to, I don't feel bad about it when I do. <laughs> so I said it it's silly, but at that point 
Maximus has obviously clearly decided to run with the plan because Cicero has shown up and has given him back his little thing, tells him the armies are just outside the city. He's got these little figurines of his wife and kid. figurines of his wife and kid. Which have approximately as much personality as his actual wife they, and kid. They, they get as much screen time as the actual wife I think wife they get more screen time, <laughs> So <laughs> basically, Cicero comes out and says, They seem My shattier too. Right the Cicero then goes and talks to Lucilla and says, uh, Maximus will meet the guy. Maximus goes and meets Gracchus. Gracchus says, yes, we're going to do this. Falco is the name of the other guy because I couldn't remember who it was for a second. It was Paul Schofield. Not Paul Schofield. Michael Schofield is the name of the actor. And he, Paul Schofield, Jesus, look him up. People who aren't from the UK uh, got himself in some problems there recently. Uh, the TV show Morning... I, uh, so the UK equivalent of Morning AM in America or whatever is it. What, what's the morning show the big morning show they used to be have Regis and Good Morning America Good Morning America so yeah the British equivalent of that um, Paul Schofield used to be or Phil Schofield was his name used to be the uh, the host of that but let's just say perhaps when you're in your 60s don't hire on underage boys uh, to be your intern and then start a relationship with them as soon as they turn 18 just saying Phil Schofield just seems a little, little bit, grooming-y. Seems a just little seems bit grooming Just a little grooming-y. bit like just, grooming. Just, just a little bit dodge, right? Just but, a bit. Uh, but anyway, just um, a bit. Uh, the other guy, Falco, he talks to Commodus about it. Lucius also spills the beans that his man might be involved. Right, the like dumb kid. He's like Maximus, the hero of Rome. And, and Commodus is like, where did you hear that? Yeah. So basically, that's. I think it's a combination of the two. It's Lucius saying that Mam was talking to him because... She, he was there, so his mother went out to go talk right. to him and let that in. And also, he knows that Gracchus had been talking to um, Lucilla. And he knows right. that Gracchus had gone to see um, Maximus because Falco told right. him that Gracchus was going to see Maximus. Right. So right. he puts it together because Commodus isn't stupid. He's arrogant yeah. and he thinks he's right about everything. But he's able to put this stuff together. And it leads to the entire uprising getting put down in one night because they have their own soldiers. They managed to capture all of the armies. They managed to capture any of the soldiers in the thing. They kill off the other gladiators that aren't Maximus. They kill off the senators. Who Juba actually does make it, I will know. Yeah, Juba, Juba escapes because he's the only mis- one, I think. mystical black man. He manages to yeah. escape. Um, and you can't kill off that character because he is the only black character that has any I, I think that's actually what it is, is. I think somebody was like, Ridley... Ridley, you have one black man. You can't kill him. You yeah. can't. Um, Lucilla uh, gets told in no uncertain terms that if she ever speaks out against um, Commodus again, that her son is going to be killed and then she will have to provide him with a pure blood heir. Well, she's actually also told that she's going to do that regardless, I believe. I believe he does say regardless that uh, you are going to provide me with an heir of pure blood because, uh, yeah, we are we are real into incest. Um, and, uh, you know, and I will note this is also, I mean, we, as I'll talk about later, like, Commodus was indeed, like, not a great guy. Um, but the incest thing in particular, there is no evidence for, and it very much feels like, some combination of just like somebody decided at some point that like I don't know in the like creepy pre-modern era we have to have incest combined with like 
let's just like throw together in a jar everything mean that anybody ever said about a Roman emperor. And so like now we just have like, we're just going to make Commodus like also Caligula. Hmm. Um, yeah, so that's the, yeah, Jesus, Commodus is such a, such a weird character in this. Um, so he then decides, again, from talking to Falco, the best thing you can do is go down and show that you're the better man. How are you going to do that? You're going to have a one-on-one fight with Maximus. And he goes down and he Which says it to stupid. Maximus. It is incredibly stupid. He says it to Maximus and Maximus is like, you want to fight me? Okay. Then he stabs Maximus in the left lung um, with, a, with a, a, a dagger in the back. Um, and it's like strap up his armor to put his armor on him. They go out into the thing. The crowd are watching it. Obviously, it's a really sloppy fight. Um, because Maximus is already on the point of dying. He's had a punctured lung, so he's slowly not being able to breathe or whatever. Uh, but he still wipes the floor with Commodus. Like, it's it's and, not a match at all. Like, And even, like, I actually even think it's drawn out more than I think is reasonable. Like, even injured, like, very intensely injured, like, seriously injured, right? Mm. Nothing about what we know about Maximus, what we know about Commodus... Or even the choreography of the fight makes it believable to me that Commodus, even in this like scenario, would have lasted anywhere near as long as he actually does. No. Uh, I think I also, it also, by the way, is around this time where Ridley Scott seems to have decided that this two and a half hour movie isn't fucking long enough. So in addition to this fight being like dragged out to a point that is unreasonable, we also just have like shots of like fucking stock footage of clouds for no goddamn reason. There's also so much slow-mo, by the way, in this movie. It is like... And, like, every five seconds, they, like, flash back to, like, a child laughing in a field to, like, remind us that Russell Crowe is this dead kid. There's so much filler in this movie. He is on the point of dying. And it's two and a half hours. It doesn't need filler. He's on the point of dying. So he is uh, reaching Elysium, going to Elysium Fields. So it, it plays a little rendition of the theme from earlier. And he's walking in the fields, which is what he told the army at the beginning. He's like, if you find yourself walking with the sun on your face and he's walking and he feels his hand But we've on seen the this same shot six times. Yes, I'm not I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm saying that's what this is for. So it's 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 meant to signify that he's close to death, but he I know he's close to death. You can tried. tell from the stab wound in his lungs <laughs> and the fact that he looks like he can't breathe and has collapsed on the ground. He I figured it out. Drags the strength in himself. To kill Commodus because Commodus drops his sword. Now, this is a thing that genuinely annoyed me um, as I was watching it is Quintus is the leader of the Praetorian Guard at this point, and Commodus gets de-armed, right? Or disarmed, de-armed. He didn't have his arms cut off. He should have. But he gets disarmed. Um, his sword gets knocked out of his hand. And Maximus is the only one with a sword at this point. And the Emperor starts going, give me your give me a sword. None of the Praetorian guards give him one. One of them looks like he's about to. And Quintus, who is the one who made the decision to kill Maximus's family. That's the, he makes it there and then in that thing. So this is his redemption moment. He's like, nobody give that man a sword. You're like, he's the goddamn emperor. Like, what happens yeah, to Quintus? And also, like... What happens to Quintus if if the almost dead Maximus dies, collapses before he can kill win, Commodus, yeah, yeah. Then what's happened in the like? It's just such a stupid move because Maximus is there in front of him, reaching out to hold his dead child, who's a ghost, 
And he's like, yeah. ah. and Commodus then brings him back out of his death reverie by throwing some of the weakest, least effectual punches or punches I've ever seen in my life. Right. Uh, then he pulls a, a hidden dagger out, tries to stab uh, Maximus, and Maximus stabs him in the throat, drops him thing, and then turns around and goes, by the way, somehow me winning this fight means that I get to make all of the decisions for... Right. Marcus Aurelius, before he died, he said we wanted a republic. Thumbs up, cool, I'm dead now. Yeah, that's... it. Why? Why is this... like? And again... The, the other thing that has been happening throughout this is every time Commodus Gazines in goes down into the arena, he has this one-on-one conversation with Maximus, and yet apparently everybody in the entire arena can hear it. Obviously. Yeah, so like they're so, all reacting to, oh, I am yeah. Maximus Decimus Meridius. <gasps> oh my God, is that Maximus Decimus right? like, Meridius? How good are the acoustics of like, the Colosseum, according to this? The Colosseum is also massive, by the way. Like, for anybody who has not been in the Colosseum, like, it is extremely large. Why don't you just flex how many times you've been in the Colosseum there, right? But but what I'm saying is, when he takes his helmet off, this will be the last time I bring up the WWE team. Actually, it won't, because when we talk about Tabula Rasa, I'm going to talk about it then. But he... uh, Tabula Rasa... Fabula Nostra. Fabula Nostra. But um, blank slip. What am I doing? Um, when um, when Maximus takes off his head, I genuinely was expecting them to play like Stone Cold Steve Austin's like glass breaking <sighs> music. Because that's the only way the audience would right. know that's who it is. Because right. it's they're so far away. It's just a t- tiny little man just Right, I just imagine this like game of telephone that they're like, who did he say he was? <laughs> That's Maximus Decimus Meridius. And then it goes to the next person. Who? Who was that? That was Desi Meridian. Who was that? <laughs> it was uh, Jalili Mamali. Oh, my God. Not Jalili. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Also, okay. So I, you know, I watched this movie, you know, a couple of days ago. Um, and I had previously watched it, like, a pretty long time ago. I'm not, I don't think I saw it in theaters, but, like, maybe relatively close to that. So, like, it's, it's been a while since I've seen it. I actually genuinely didn't remember what the end was, um, except I was pretty sure that Maximus died. And I was pretty sure that I remembered that. And so I'm watching this movie. I'm like, okay, so, like, there's two options. Like, either, like, Russell Crowe, like, just dies and nothing changes, which is, like, a bummer, but, like, a bummer of an ending, I get, you know, if you care about him, which I don't. Um, but, you know, whatever, I guess. Or you have, the, like, a ridiculous ahistorical ending where, like, you kill Commodus a decade too early and, like, imply that we're reestablishing the Republic. And I love how they did both. They had, like, both, like, the, like, bummer killing off the main character and the ridiculous ahistorical ending. Like, great twofer. Um, it also Scott does end with, again. Uh, it also does end with, uh, well, so the line that, uh, or the, um, you know, um, uh, in the credits, right, there's like the, uh, there's like text that says, uh, while some of the characters and incidents depicted in this film are based on historical fact, the story itself is fictional, for which I think I audibly said, yeah, Ridley, no shit. Oh, is that what it said at the end of yours? I must yeah. have the new Blu-ray edition, because what it says at the end of mine is, while some of the characters and incidents depicted in this film are based on historical fact, Somebody tell Sarah if Decker not to take it too seriously. This is a work of fiction. Please stop being mean to me. Dot, dot, dot. Ridley, I will uh, never stop being mean to you. Then there was just like a, a crying emoji. <laughs> I don't know what was going on. My goal in life is to make Ridley Scott cry. 
subjectively said to this podcast. I can't wait. I like. I legitimately at this point hope that Napoleon is just unbelievably perfect movie. It won't, I, be. It won't be. I mean, but, I mean, uh, just uh, just by the casting, I already have a problem with it. Why Vanessa Kirby plays a French lady? Yeah, Vanessa Kirby um plays uh Josephine, who is like famously older than Napoleon. So mm-hmm. of course they cast an actress who's fucking like twenty years younger. Yeah, she's incredibly pretty though. Yeah, but like it's just like come Sarah, on. She's Ugh. incredibly pretty. Of course she is, but like you want to cast Vanessa Kirby? Great. Don't cast Joaquin Phoenix. Cast some guy who's like fucking twenty years old, because actually that would make more sense anyway, because it's supposed to be about young Napoleon. Cast Austin Butler. Yeah. Who Have looks the movie like be a young, Aust- Yeah. He looks like young Joaquin Phoenix. Like that's, yeah, that's what he does. Do that. Yeah. Do that. I'm happy to keep Vanessa Kirby and just ditch Joaquin. Like Joaquin Phoenix is too old for the role he's playing anyway. Hmm. Like. Yeah, so Ridley Scott you know, likes him. Because, fine. Because. So. <laughs> That should be a good lead into the favorite at Falso, where we talk about what they got right and what they got wrong. Falso. Wow. Where to start, Ollie? Where to start? Well, let me see. We should probably start at the things they got wrong, because that'll be the quickest. Uh, you know, uh, I don't think it will. Um... Actually, I'm going to start with something they got right. So uh, Maximus has this like little altar thing um, where he's like worshiping and talking to his family. And that is at least connected to a real thing. So the Lararium, which is a domestic altar that would be filled with figurines of deities. They could be made of bronze, clay, wood, wax. Uh, a lot of the like actual deities are mass produced uh, and they're kind of reproducing popular iconography. And this is a really important part of Roman domestic worship uh, and actually would be something that soldiers would have like a version of uh, uh, on the road um, as they are traveling. And um, these could also include effigies or other representations, sometimes painted of living family members. Yeah. And I did find one thing online, which was a little bit of a questionable source. So anybody who uh, is a Roman historian, who is an expert in Roman religion, please let me know if this is accurate. But I did find one thing online suggesting that soldiers traveling actually might bring, uh, figurines of their living family members as a way to kind of have them with them. Uh, while traveling so so those figurines were like least. the medieval equivalent of when you're driving behind a minivan you see the little stickers of the stick figures you know the white little uh, stickers where <laughs> yeah basically the husband the wife and then like the little kids and then sometimes there's a dog at the end yeah yeah basically um and you know and it's supposed to you know and it's like this kind of act of like worship and of like and like it really kind of highlights the importance of the domestic space as being kind of connected to worship and of this being something that is considered like valuable for soldiers to still like have this connection with uh while on the road for long periods of time and away from their families um so okay that that was fine i found it a little weird that he never like mentioned any roman god by name he just refers vaguely to like the father and the mother and more often kind of talks to the father which kind of made me wonder if they're sort of trying to play down the fact that we are talking about like polytheism um and not christianity but uh, you know i'll i'll give them the lorarium uh, i i think overall. it's i think they're he's really going for 
um god and mary there like that's a whole yeah like it just really feels like an our father hail mary moment like yeah i so i think like even though he doesn't actually like make like it's not christian but i think he's trying to like downplay the extent to which it's not christian to like make it more relatable to christians hmm. who are okay. his presumed audience gonna cut this bit out is there a, a jewish equivalent of mary no no i didn't think so Absolutely not. No, I, I, I Jen, it, it was hitting my head like, because the Catholic Church is all about Mary in, in certain instances. Mm. Like, I'm going, is there a Jewish equivalent that like? No. No, because no. you don't treat women with respect like we do. <laughs> oh, yeah. Famously, the Catholic Church treats women with respect. Yeah, they're only um, good as long as they're virgins and pure. I mean, and also for that matter, like, I do think it's like, like, this is an argument that I have with, like, my mother all the time. Is like, my mother seems to think that, like, polytheism and, like, having goddess figures, like, means that you like women better. And I'm like, have you read Greek myth? Because they <laughs> don't. True. They do not like women. <laughs> okay. Anyway. Um, so there. That's something that they did well. Um, and then there's a lot of things that they uh, didn't. So first of all, um, woof the costumes. Uh, and in particular, I will note the uh, the armor and the helmets are a goddamn disaster. Um, some of them are from like a century before the film took place. Some of them look like medieval full plate armor. Um, some of their arm of the like armor that people are wearing is stuff that would have been worn like only in a ceremonial context and never in an actual battle. And then there are these like ludicrous fantasy helmets that covers people's entire faces that like nobody would wear in a battle ever because there is zero chance you could see. Yeah, you would definitely um, wouldn't. There was the, that guy Tigris or Tigris had zero peripheral vision. Like he couldn't yeah, see left yeah, or right. That man could not see. Yeah. Um. There are also a lot of issues with the artillery. So in particular that, um, so there are some specific pieces of artillery that are accurate. Uh, there are some that are not. There are some that are uh, only seen about a century or so later. But regardless, in that big battle at the beginning, pretty much all of the artillery that you see like all is like all stuff that would be used in siege warfare that makes no sense to use for a battle in the middle of, in the middle of a forest. Uh, that's actually also true of the flaming arrows that, I mean, first of all, there is a heavy exaggeration of their level of firepower. We also add in these like fire pots being launched from the catapults, which is also not something that we would have actually seen in this context. Um, but and again, but like even the fire arrows, which like might have been used at this time, it's stupid to use them in a forest because like you're all in the same forest. And if you start setting the trees on fire, you're all, or like a, you know, a bed of like dry leaves, like you're all maybe kind of fucked. They really only make sense in the context of siege warfare, where you shoot them over a wall into a city that the enemy is in and you're not in. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, do you know who would have decided not to use them? Big girly Commodus, Sarah. But yeah, big exactly. manly Maximus, he's like, flames! Obviously. Obviously. Um, other concerns that I have about this film. Um, and by the way, I will just note where uh, we're doing some like little things. There's some like really big, intense, overarching things that uh, is going to be saved for the next segment. But so another little thing um, is the uh, portrayal of Mauritania Caesariensis. So these, uh, this kind of Roman African province. So 
this part of, you know, so like North Africa, right? North Africa is Romanized, essentially going back to the fall of Carthage, right? Which is the mid second century BCE. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is like an area that has been like under Roman rule to like in various ways for a pretty long time at this stage, right? Like for, you know, several hundred years, right? At this point. And would have written was like very much considered to be an area that was very kind of fully Romanized. So what we actually see in the film is we see all of this architecture that looks like vaguely like medieval Islamic, Mm -hmm. um, which, you know, is several hundred years out of date. Uh, We see a lot of people in turbans. It very much seems invested in this kind of orientalized depiction of like North Africa, essentially as like this kind of like part of like a kind of Islamic East. Whereas in reality, as I said, it would have been very heavily Romanized. Like, and that would be reflected, for example, in particular in the architecture. Like we have Roman ruins in North Africa, which are of buildings and like, actually for that matter, like arenas that like look very much like things that you see in Rome or for that were in Spain or in, you know, or in certain parts of what is now France, right? That like all of these places are part of the Roman empire and it is very much a part of Roman imperial power that they are importing Romanized architectural forms to different, these different geographical settings that are all part of the Roman empire. And that, like, the elite that we have in some place like North Africa is also going to be a Romanized elite. They would have dressed uh, potentially in ways that kind of blended some, like, local styles and Roman styles, but, like, regardless, would not have included turbans. Um, Like, arguably, they should be wearing, like, togas, not turbans, in fact. Um, It's certainly, like... And, you know, and, and like that, you know, this would have been like a Latin speaking elite, like that essentially like we're like in reality, right. We have this like Romanized population, um, uh, that in like, they make this kind of weird decision to intensely like orientalize, um, in a way that feels like both some combination, combination of anachronistic and racist, I'll say. Yeah. It feels very, um, yeah, I did. I don't want this to sound like a defense of the movie because it's not it feels very shorthandy like as in Mm -hmm. how can we how can we get across that this is north africa right first of all um let's make everything be uh, a a wattle and daub building let's have um everything be covered in tarps and there's like dripping paint everywhere and also everybody's wearing a turban and people are wearing like long flowing robes and people like Oliver Reed might have their skin darkened so that they can look Yeah, like I locals. am pretty sure Oliver Reed is in brown face, um, which is uh, not great. It's not yeah. great. I, I, I didn't notice you'd mention that in the notes, but that's what it looks like he might be wearing to me. He looks like, he looks like Omar Sharif. Yeah, like his, his skin looks darker yeah. in this film than it does in other photos I saw. Yeah. I will just say. So as said, it just as you said, it's trying to just put a blend in. It's like what's the best way to describe what I'm trying to say here without sounding like I'm defending the show. It feels like a really so this is a big expensive Hollywood movie, but it feels like I'm watching a TV show from the mid nineties that are like, Oh, we've gone to Japan. Oh, how do we know we've gone to Japan? Well, we've put those ceremonial gates in front of a city street 
Oh, and right. we've put loads of neon signs up. Uh, and it's one of the many people? ways when this just movie feels lazy. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's it. Just it, it, it's a shorthand or shortcut way of doing something because they knew they were only going to have two scenes in the area. But it's so also like, like I do find it striking, though, right? That you need to do that for North Africa, but like they actually don't do that when he like shows up in Spain, right? I mean, the only reason you know that he's in Spain now is because he's you know his dead family is there. But yeah. I mean, it's like it's kind of the equivalent of if he like showed up in Spain and like as he was like. Getting home, he passed somebody like doing a flamenco dance and serving him paella. <laughs> I'm just gonna stop off. I get. I think that the two people hanging down there at the thing could be my wife and kid. That paella looks class. It smells delicious. The size of those shrimp, for God's sake. Gotta love a good paella. I'm just saying. Okay. <laughs> And the last thing in this segment that I wanted to talk about was gladiatorial combat. So this is indeed a popular form of entertainment in Rome, but there are some errors, unsurprisingly, associated I'm, with it. I'm shocked that there in are this any particular of film. So uh, one I will note is that so they decide for plot that they want there to be this like change, right? That Marcus Aurelius had banned gladiatorial games in Rome and that now that Commodus is there, he's like, yay, gladiatorial games. And this is a combination, right, of we need to have like an implicit change for reasons, which actually we kind of don't. And uh, we also need to imply that, of course, Marcus Aurelius is a good guy, so he's not going to have people fighting to death in the arena, right? And Marcus Aurelius did not, in fact, ban the games in Rome. There's one location, uh, I believe it's the city of Antioch, where he banned gladiatorial games. It wasn't because he thought gladiatorial games are unethical, it's because he was punishing the city. And because everybody there had holy hand grenades. So Yeah, yeah so the gladiatorial were, games were rough. It was just like... Dangerous just for the uh, spectators. Um, the next point that you got written down here, we have talked about this before. The one yes. about what thumbs up and thumbs down. What movie were we watching? I think it was The Eagle. Uh, yes, you're right. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah. So this film is um, one of, I guess I would say, the kind of recent... Um, offenders in popularizing and almost certainly inaccurate representation of essentially how people determined who's going to live or die in gladiatorial combat. Um, So in the film, right, thumbs up means let them live, thumbs down means let them die. Hashtag let them die. Um, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's been a while since we hashtag let them die. I know, right? This is... um, not entirely Ridley Scott's fault, or at least he didn't invent it. Uh, the I believe the kind of origin, at least, of this you know trope seems to come from a 19th century painting, uh, Police Verso, by uh, a French artist, Jean-Léon Gérôme, uh, where the thumbs down is used to represent this choice to kill a gladiator and the thumbs up to represent sparing them. Um in reality, it seems like probably the thumbs up is what you do when you want to kill the gladiator. And if you don't want to kill the gladiator, you have like a closed fist. Um, 
But I will note that I found it very entertaining that apparently the like discussion of this in the context of like historical accuracy is not new to modern media. It actually also happened uh, around the context of this paper, of the, I'm sorry, of this painting, that several years after the painting was done, uh, a 26 page pamphlet was published discussing uh, the accuracy of the painting and presenting the evidence uh, in both directions. Yeah, by some... Uh snotty-nosed woman it says here some lesera Deca. <laughs> i have a great deal of respect for that person i also loved how you My pronounced uh, jean leon Jerome earlier uh which looks like jean leon Jerome. <laughs> that's where i'm reading it like but that's just me so those are the little things Everything else kind that I have, I and there are, I'm sure, more, but everything else in particular that I take issue with uh, falls under the rubric of a set of big problems with how they depict essentially the entire kind of imperial history of this period, including the lives and characters of Marcus Aurelius, Commodus, and Lucilla. So that's going to be the subject of uh, the following segment, the Historia at Veritas. Historia et Veritas. So let's start with Marcus Aurelius, emperor 161 to 180 CE, stoic philosopher, known as a capable administrator, had some difficulties in his reign, both the wars uh, with uh, Germania and a plague outbreak. And he is known as the last of the five good emperors. So... Why is he the last of the five good emperors? Well, the four previous emperors had said, you know what seems like a good idea? Instead of relying on my son being the best guy for the job of being the next emperor, Mm. I'm going to pick somebody who I think will be a good emperor and legally adopt them so they are designated as my successor. And that's why, that's probably why you kept having good emperors is because lo and behold, not that picking somebody necessarily always relies in a, you know, good ruler, cough, America, cough. But in the movie, I did. So is that why Commodus is referring to um, Maximus's brother a couple of times and Marcus Aurelius refers to Maximus's son? So he weirdly, weirdly, it seems like that might be what they're trying to go for, but they never actually say that he was legally adopted. And in fact, Commodus says, well, my father loved you. So that makes it like we're brothers, which is not how adoption or anything else works. Like it's a legal process. Yeah. But what I was thinking in my head was (laughs) Commodus seems completely blindsided by the fact that the job was offered to Maximus. You're like... If he's just adopted the guy who's the general of the armies and it's been shown that the last four emperors have all adopted somebody and given them the job. Like, Commodus sitting at home going, ah, he's just adopting uh, Maximus because he likes him. Like, that's all. It's definitely not because he's about to give him the job of uh, future emperor. But he's not adopting him, though. Like, as it, like adoption is an actual legal procedure, which does not happen, nor is it overtly claimed to have happened in the field, like, like in the film. Like, he mm-hmm. just, like, refers to him as, like, son in a, like, 
way that like, like in a like, we have a, like a father figure relationship. Like it never says he's legally adopted. Uh, but yes, as you said, like, right, that would be, that would make it like sil even sillier for him to like seem really blindsided given that the previous like several emperors have done that. But I will say, I guess in the context of reality, it would make sense for him to be blindsided because the real Marcus Aurelius not only like did not select, like was not trying to get somebody else to be his successor, but in fact, like clear, very clearly had designated Commodus as his successor well before this. So uh, he gives him the uh, the title Caesar in 166. So this is, you know, something that kind of began as an actual, you know, part of, you know, Julius Caesar's name gets adopted by um, his, you know, descendants and adoptive descendants, uh, right, as, or, you know, members of the family, right, as, like, through an association, but then has, like, by this time, uh, you know, a, a decent amount after that, has just essentially become a title that is associated with the emperor, regardless yeah. of the fact that at this point, like, none of these people have any meaningful relationship to Julius to Caesar. To Julius Caesar, yeah. Um, but if you give your son the title Caesar and what in, you know, when he's still relatively young, you're implying that you expect him to succeed you. And in fact, so in already in 177, so when Commodus would have been a teenager, um, at that point already, Marcus Aurelius uh, starts actually jointly ruling with him, which is, you know, how you essentially set somebody up, right, as the, the next, next emperor, right? Yeah. It's essentially, it's a, you know, it's like being your, it's like you're kind of the emperor in training. Yeah, you're and shadowing so like, him is... or you're, you're, like, I have student teachers come in and shadow me for yeah. two months at a time before yeah. they, they ever get to teach a real class. It's annoying right. as hell. Stop following me to the bathroom. Like, the, you don't have to shadow me that close. Goddamn Commodus. Right. And so that means, like, first of all, that there's no evidence that Commodus murdered his father, but also that, like, there's no reason for him to have murdered his father. At the mm -hmm. time that his father died, he was 18. And there's really no reason to think that he wouldn't have been, like, particularly fine going, like, an extra couple of years before becoming sole emperor. So this is, I think, really interesting and in that I think Ridley Scott is really desperate to define Marcus Aurelius, except for the fact that he's kind of a shit dad in this film, as otherwise this uncomplicatedly good emperor. So which means, right, not only is he, you know, this like philosopher and like a nice guy, but he also allegedly wishes to restore the, the Republic, for which there is no evidence whatsoever. There was a dream and that was Rome, much, Sarah. And very much feels like, though, this, like, democracy is good. And so these characters can't be good unless they are pro-democracy, um, which is simply ludicrous in this context. And also, like, Marcus Aurelius also, even though we're saying, like, well, he's kind of a shitty dad, we also can't square, we, we can't have the moral ambiguity of Marcus Aurelius was both himself a good emperor, but also made the dumb choice to have his shit son be the next emperor. <laughs> and this is actually something that like people in like at the like in the Roman, like in the like Roman era were much more able to kind of handle, in fact, this sort of moral ambiguity. Uh, so like this is very much part of Cassius's Dio, Cassius Dio's assessment of Marcus Aurelius's reign. Uh, that he writes, Marcus Aurelius did not meet with the good fortune that he deserved, for he was not strong in body and was involved in a multitude of troubles throughout practically his entire reign. 
But for my part, I admire him all the more for this very reason, that amid unusual and extraordinary difficulties, he both survived himself and preserved the empire. Because that's, by the way, a good, the sign of a good Roman empire is that you preserve the empire, empire. not that you're trying to establish a republic. Just one thing prevented him from being completely happy, namely that after rearing and educating his son in the best possible way, he was vastly disappointed in him. (laughs) This matter must be our next topic, for our history now descends from a kingdom of gold to one of iron and rust, as affairs did for the Romans of that day. So, you know, that they were basically like, yeah, he was pretty good, except that, like, you know, this, like, son of his really didn't work out so great. (laughs) And, like, he still decided to, like, you know, have him identified as his successor, and he, like, ruined the Roman Empire. And indeed... You know, we have a very cartoonishly villainous Commodus, but like, indeed, he's like, like Commodus did, in fact, suck. I hope um, Cassius Dio did that at the end of a chapter. Like, that's, you know, just coming to the end of a chapter, chapter five, Commodus sucks. I think that is the end of the chapter, basically. So let's talk about Commodus. Commodus wasn't a great guy. Um, the best thing probably that can be said about him is that there is in fact not evidence that he harbored incestuous desires for his sister. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, actually the, uh, more contemporary rumor would actually have been, um, that he, there are hints that he was at least accused of at the time of having sexual relationships with some of his male favorites. Ooh. Um, you know, the queer coding of villains is not new. Um, and he was he was a lot. So um, he did actually engage in a show combat in the Colosseum. Um, this was not, however, like a battle like this where despite him having injured Russell Crowe, it was a battle that like he could genuinely lose. What he actually did is that sometimes he fought animals and by fought animals, I mean, he stood like in the stands and shot them with a bow and arrow or like threw a spear at them. Mm -hmm. Um, And like, they're not getting to him because he is way above them. Uh, Or he fought against gladiators where like, it is very clear that they threw the fights because like losing in a fight to Commodus was like better than the alternative, which was which was generally like, instead you could be crucified if you would like. So, you know. Yeah, nobody wants to get crucified. Not after right. what happened to Christ that time. <laughs> Just a dime a dozen. Like any common criminal. Um, Sarah. He's also... Yes. <sighs> he's also known for being arbitrary, capricious, and violent. Um, he didn't seem very interested in running the state. Instead, he spent a lot of time with his harem um, and had a kind of succession of favorites who actually ran things and whom he then murdered when he eventually like didn't trust them anymore. Uh, the city of Rome at some point during his reign was ravaged by fires, which he didn't really try to stop. And then afterwards he's like, this is a good opportunity for me to rename the city of Rome after myself as the <laughs> Colonia Lucia Ania Comodiana. And also suggested renaming it or like actually, and I even actually like introduced the renaming after himself of the months, the Senate and the, uh, the Roman legions and the Roman population. Yeah. That's what I would do too. Like if I'm going to if I'm going to be the emperor, is named stuff is it, now. what's this? This is the Olinus now. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much that's pretty much what Commodus did. 
Yeah, nice. Um, he actually was pretty popular uh, with the army and the general populace, in part because, like, you know, he sponsored all these gladiatorial games, and, like, that's kind of fun. Um, he's not popular with the Senate. Uh, he did not go so far as to attempt to abolish the Senate overtly, as is seen in this film, just, you know, named it after himself. Um, but, you know, they weren't fans. No. So unsurprisingly, given all this, uh, he was the subject of several assassination attempts. One in the year 182 was actually organized by his sister Lucilla. Um, the way in which this is characterized in the Roman sources, uh, unsurprisingly reeks of the same kind of misogyny as this film. Um, she is, uh, sometimes accused of, uh, uh, having conspired against him, not because he was a shit emperor, but because she envied the position of the empress, her sister-in-law, and, like, wanted to, like, be that powerful, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, or, or, and in addition, the uh, two men that she was co that she was conspiring with are uh, identified as being her lovers, which again, like, kind of reeks of misogyny. Yeah. Um, and is basically also what they do in this film. <laughs> so, Commodus, however, would eventually be successfully assassinated. Uh, he is strangled in the, in the bath by uh, the wrestler Narcissus. Uh, which is pretty excellent. Um, and uh, the Senate was like, yeah, nope, great. We are glad this guy is dead. <laughs> uh, after his death, after his death, they demolished statues of him and rubbed his name out from inscriptions. So I don't think they formally instituted the Demnatia Memoriae, but essentially it was like a de facto version of that. Yeah. This guy um, is gone. Yeah. However, the death of Commodus did not, in fact, uh, solve Rome's problems. The uh, following year, the year after his death, so he died in 192, the year 193 is known as the Year of the Five Emperors. And shockingly enough, when you have a Year of the Five Emperors, they uh, generally did not die of natural causes. No, you would assume that somebody was getting bumped off there. Probably getting, like, uh, choked by big, burly wrestlers while they're naked in a bath. Right. Uh, this film also, by the way, does this thing that like, I feel like a number of other things do, which is sort of a pet peeve of mine, where they're just like, timelines, that doesn't matter. So like, if you were watching this movie, how, how much time do you think this movie would cover, right? Like, how much time do you think passes from the death of Marcus Aurelius to the death of Commodus? So based on the movie? Just based on the movie, like having watched the movie, how much time would you assume had passed? I'm going to say somewhere in the region of about three or four months. Yeah, so uh, Commodus and reigned the, for but almost... But just saying, that's just putting in the fact that, I, like, they would have to ride from Germany to Italy on horses, like, and to get... Like, I, I, yeah. I don't think it would be... Like, the movie, it could have happened over the space of a weekend. Except, you know. Right. But yeah, even so, yeah, even if you allow for like time skips, travel, etc., like you really like it, it, it doesn't seem like it could possibly be more than like even generously one might say like a year, right? Yeah, 100%. So the little kid is eight. Yeah. That's what he says. It's, this kid is eight. Yeah. And he still looks like he's eight, maybe nine. Yeah. 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 Commodus reigned for 13 years. Just seems it, it. That's what I was saying. It seems like it took about thirteen years or so. Hundred and fifty yeah. days of games. Uh huh. Thirteen years. Yep, thirteen years. 
yeah, this is, this is, as I said, a kind of big pet peeve of mine is when you're like, eh, we can imply that Commodus died within like a year of becoming emperor, right? That's cool. Yeah, it just seems like that's why it's a weird choice to give the time. Like, at that stage, say, say Marcus Aurelius lived longer or like clearly call it out that this is what's happening or just say that um, Maximus lived for nine years as a slave for Omar Jalili, just as a slave. Right. And not straight I mean, into... Yeah. And especially also because actually, like, so, like, Russell Crowe is actually... Or, sorry, not Russell Crowe. Uh, Russell Crowe plays a fake person. Uh, Joaquin <laughs> Phoenix, actually, in terms of, like, I looked up how old he is. Uh, See, so, you know, this is a young Joaquin Phoenix. He's, like, about 25. That actually puts him, actually, like, pretty closely in between the age yeah. that Commodus was when he became emperor and the age that he was when he was assassinated and, and died. Um... So, like, actually, like, that, you know, like, that would have been fine. I feel like he would have been, like, okay to, like, I don't know, he can't quite play 18, but, like, I don't know, like, 18 to 30, like, fine, like, give him 18 to 31, right? Like, yeah. that actually would have kind of made sense if they had, yeah, he like, play, more he can play than... somebody five years younger and five years older. Like, yeah. He could do yeah. that, yeah. Right, like, that actually, like, would have worked, and so it just seems very silly that they don't do that. I mean, you know, not as silly as the implication at the end of the movie that we have reestablished the Roman Republic, but silly. How? When did they reestablish the Roman Republic, sir? Never! What? Italy's not a republic at the minute. I mean, it's not the Roman Republic. <laughs> I was trying, just trying to get you there. Rome remained an empire until it stopped remaining. This film, in my opinion was not successful or good. So that then leads into the next segment, the Fabula Nostra, where we talk about a film or other piece of media we'd like to see in the world inspired by this one, perhaps instead of this one. Fabula Nostra. Hmm. All right, Sarah, do you want me to go first? Yes. Okay. I was thinking about this the entire way through and uh, you guys who are listening couldn't hear this. We took a break to run up to the bathroom there, um, because we've been recording for several hours, and uh, and I drank an entire bottle of Diet Coke with lime, by the way, just for the record, Diet Coke with lime, the best version of Diet Coke. But I ran upstairs, um, took a quick pee, and then went into my bedroom, looked at a couple of books. One of them quite weird. Uh, the other one was uh, it's called uh, Test of the Twins, and Test of the Twins is a Dragonlance novel. Um, and one of the characters is named Caramon and he gets transported uh, in Dragonlance times, which is D&D, &D, uh, to the equivalent of the Roman Empire. And while he's in the equivalent of the Roman Empire, he, because he was a warrior in his own time, he decides, I'll go be a gladiator. And when he gets there, it turns out that the gladiators are fake. And I knew that was going through my head. I was like, what book am I thinking of that did this? It was like, Caramon becomes a gladiator. And it's all fake. So every time they stab somebody, um, it's like a bladder full of chicken's blood that they release the blood from and then they die or whatever. So he trains and becomes effectively a fan favorite as Caramon the victor. And he's living and working as this gladiator. And even though it's set back in the 1800s, or sorry, the 1800s, in, it is 18 something like this in the books, because like D&D &D time is different, but it's like 18 whatever it was, uh, he is living as a gladiator in those times, 
and every time that he gets killed in the arena he just comes back as a different character like they would in wrestling and i think it would be genuinely funny to make a comedy movie about gladiators but gladiators in the same way as knight's tale is like a modern kind of adaption of oh how would Mm -hmm. they be fighting and we'd be doing like we'd be playing music and golden years by david bowie would play when people are dancing i think it would be genuinely hilarious if we made a movie set in the time called it gladiator and have it be a professional wrestling movie about professional mm. professional wrestlers but they're using fake swords and people think that they're doing swords and they're big tough muscly looking dudes but they're not actually all that good at fighting or sword fighting or anything and stuff like this here and then we can even get into the whole performance aspect of it where people don't get excited anymore about people swinging swords at each other so they start doing fancy flicks and twirling their blades and that's how we end up with 700 800 900 years later a thousand years later 1800 years later we have every movie that comes out somebody has to do a double flip of his sword before he tries to stab somebody despite the fact that that makes no sense whatsoever and makes your hand uh, not connected to the blade for several seconds which means if the blade gets on top you drop it all of this sort of stuff and i think it can all be linked in so i would like as i said to make a movie about gladiators but it's fake gladiatorial combat we'll make it a comedy let's put Let's think of good comedy actors that could fit into this. Uh, obviously, we could throw The Rock in because he's a former wrestler. Let's just throw Stone mm-hmm. Cold Steve Austin in. Let's put John oh, Cena yeah. on it, who's been doing a lot of good comedy work recently. Um, let's put Batista in there. Um, and then let's throw in some just big, muscly dudes. And we'll probably have to have some women in there too. Uh, although if Vince McMahon and the WWE are involved, he probably won't want us to do that. So let's just say we're going to make a comedy called Gladiator, and it's about how gladiators were the original wrestlers, and it was all fake, none of it was real, and they had to try and keep the story. And it's been a long time since I watched wrestling, which is why I just named guys who haven't wrestled in about 15 years. Uh, but let's say, uh, what's the name of the word? Can you, do you know this here? There's a word that wrestling people use no. to describe pretending it's real in the real world. So like you don't let the game away that it was fake. And that's what like all of those guys in the 80s and early 90s had to like if they were not friends on TV, they weren't allowed to hang out with each other outside of work. So like they had to pretend to hate each other. Right. Um, I think it's like kayfab or kayfabe, something like this, right? So it's some some word. So they have to try and keep the kayfab or the kayfabe uh, real back in the time when if they get seen going around to another person's house. Isn't that the name of Britney Spears' ex-husband? Kevin Federline? K-Fed. Oh, K-Fed. That's K-Fed. All right. I was wondering. <laughs> I also am delighted I could pull up the name Kevin Federline from the back of my memory there. Yeah. pretty happy but that's what i do yeah so gladiator uh, a movie about gladiators but it's all fake it's all like the equivalent of wrestling for the people in 180 <sighs> ce that sounds very fun so knowing that there is going to be a gladiator 2 i came up with my idea 
be for Gladiator 2 based entirely on the fact that I'm an asshole. Um, you're so, not an asshole, Sarah. Wait, no, I'm looking at what score you're giving this. <laughs> we haven't gotten to that yet. So, Commodus, age 19, wakes up from a horrible dream. This horrible dream was the first Gladiator film. None of it is real. <laughs> yeah, of course he didn't murder his father. Maximus is not a real person. He never would have incestuous designs upon his sister, etc. And on the one hand, he's very embarrassed and ashamed of the like actions in this dream, which really is kind of keep sticking in his head. But he's not like really chastened enough to like stop being in other ways a pretty shitty person and ever. The central character is actually Lucilla, who is struggling with her brother's increasingly erratic behavior, uh, which includes him constantly referencing and apologizing for bizarre events that she is sure never happened. Uh, Like, you know, I'm sorry, I, you know, hit on you that one time, just like that didn't happen. Or like, (laughs) I like, I feel so guilty for killing our father. And she's like, you were not in the same place as him when he died, etc. Is Maximus Uh, your son's father? I don't have And a occasionally, son. yeah, and occasionally wildly ranting about his non-existent enemy, Maximus. And she's like, that's not even a name. Um, <laughs> but if and, it was, what a name. And this, and this seeming, like, erratic madness will eventually inspire her, unfortunately, tragically unsuccessful attempt to assassinate her brother. That's good. I like this. Yeah. I like it. So Gladiator 2 is him waking up from a dream, uh, uh-huh. but he can't get the, rem- the he can't forget the memories of what happened in Gladiator. So he's yeah. like dissociated. And that's what like makes him, life. yeah, and that affects like him like becoming like, like going down this path of becoming like increasingly erratic and unpleasant and like therefore Lucilla deciding she has no choice but to have uh, him assassinated. Who, who would play Lucilla? That is a good question that I didn't come up with an answer for. What about Commodus? You need a 19-year-old now. I know, right? Who's 19? I feel like even Timothy Chalamet is too old. Oh, plus, nobody wants it. Like, I, yeah, right. Not, I don't know. I have, no, ca- I have no casting for this but movie. I'm going to be honest. A, he's just a guy I just don't get. Like, I don't, I don't even get... I don't even get him as handsome. Like, I just... He's oh, I can nothing see how he's handsome. Me. No, like... Maybe you just don't have good taste in men, Ollie. No, I think I've got excellent taste in men, Sarah. Like I, I like I'm not gay. I hope. Um, but <laughs> Otherwise, you'd be like those giraffes. So, God, I'd be like, God damn it! I'd be the worst giraffe ever. But like, I, I can see an Oscar Isaac and go, yeah, that's that's good looking dude. I like look at that guy. That guy's good looking dude, right? Whereas I look at Timothy Chalamet, I just go, those are some really high cheekbones. I mean, he's very pretty. But that's the thing is, I don't even know if he's, I don't even know if he is pretty. Like, I think think he's he's just, I think he's striking. Yeah. But I don't see any reason to find him attractive, if that makes sense. Whereas I look at Tom Holland, who has a similar jaw structure and face structure. I'm like, no, Tom Holland's like a good looking version of him. I don't know. I actually don't find Tom Holland very attractive. Maybe you. I think he looks too boyish. But Timothy Chalamet looks like a real man's man. <laughs> no, I just, I don't know. Something about like Tom Holland, he's, like he looks so young. Like it seems wrong to think he's attractive. Yeah, but that is true. That is true. Um, but everybody looks young 
to me these days. Everybody. That's terrible. Um, Sarah, we should probably give this thing a rating. Esther Matteo. We should. I'm going to give this movie a one out of five. I simply don't think it's good. Like, this isn't a bit. I just, I genuinely don't like this movie. I did not enjoy watching it. I, it's not even like the historical accuracy. I just like thought it was dumb and boring and all of the characters were boring and had no personality except for like Commodus, whose personality is that he's like a creepy asshole. I think Russell Crowe's performance is bad. I don't think he should have won Best Actor. I don't think this should have won Best Picture. I simply don't think this is a good movie. I like nothing about it. D- I'm giving this a you, one out of five. You have no redeeming features for this movie whatsoever. No, I'm, I I see what you're saying, right, about they are well-done action sequences. But I still stand by, like, I don't think a well-done action sequence is valuable unless you have, in a movie... Unless there is, like, it's not a documentary, right? It's a narrative film. And I don't think a well-done action sequence is valuable, really, unless there is a reason to give a shit about the characters involved in the scenes. And I simply don't. Okay. Sarah, I am not going to disagree. It's That's your rating whatsoever. So from my rating, I... I don't want to fall out with Sarah on this. I think this is an excellent movie. I genuinely do. I Weird. I would... I'm tempted to give it 5 out of 5, but I'm not going to. I'm going to give it 4.5 out of 5. And I'm going to tell you why I'm going to take that half star off, right? Is there is... After the fight with Tigris, um, Maximus has four conversations in darkened rooms with different people. And Commodus has a bunch of conversations in darkened rooms with different people, and so does Lucilla. And all of this leads to a nothing scene. Like, it's just a long, drawn-out, boring section. And I always remember that this boring section is coming up. And for some reason, in my head, there's another big action sequence after that. Or there's a big action sequence at the end of it. So you feel like you're you're building up to this. But there's not. Mm-hmm. There's only just the fight with Commodus. So because of that, like, and having, I legitimately just watched this movie right, like, I finished this movie and then myself and Sarah started the podcast, right? So this is not, ooh, I, I have slightly worse memories from seeing it in a while or whatever. I, I watched this today, right? Um, Less than an hour and a half ago or two hours ago, whatever length of time the podcast is. And that boring section is boring. That like it's too much twisty, turny stuff. And Sarah, you know, I love a big, complicated yeah. story. I love like I'm I'm a Wheel of Time. Lord of the Rings fan. I'm a Wheel of Time fan. I'm I'm a George R. R. Martin t- fan. Like I want all of that stuff. This is just like legitimately that little section is disappointing. But I think all of the performances are really good in this. And I know you don't like Russell Crowe in general and you don't like him in this movie. And I think Ridley Scott does an excellent job in directing it and keeping it all together. It's just that one section. Otherwise, this would be a five out of five movie for me. And I know that maybe it's just because the action sequences are so good and that is my jam when it comes to watching this type of movie. But I genuinely think this is an excellent movie. But at the same time, 
I totally understand why you don't like it and I totally understand why it's annoying to you and I totally understand why we're on different pages and this might be the furthest apart we've ever been in fact it it's about be. as far apart as it we might can possibly be pretty get close. um except you know in your erroneous uh giving of three stars to the best medieval movie which is uh, 13 warrior but that's beside we'll, we'll, we'll leave that aside um but yeah uh I think it's great now Sarah you said you wanted to do something else uh, yeah so a, I Yes, I will. I will also note because this is a lead into that that I also think this movie has a whole lot of uncritical and unexamined, like racism, misogyny, and homophobia, um, which leads into how so I think fights. that is a feature of most Russell Crowe films and certainly pretty much all of his historical epics. So I would like, in honor of Ridley having all of these new movies coming out. I would like to do a ranking of the Ridley Scott films. I'll say the ones covered on this podcast. That is uh, four movies, which in chronological order of when they were released are Gladiator, Kingdom of Heaven, Robin Hood, and The Last Duel. And you have also, you covered the three, uh, you have covered three of those with me and have also seen The Last Duel, correct? Yes. So, and let's start with. He also did Exodus, Gods and Kings, which you yes, haven't seen. Yes, and he seen. also did a 1492 movie, which I also have not seen. So I'm gonna. So I, I haven't seen them, so I obviously cannot rate them. So I'd suggest let's let's put a put a pin in in those. So 1492 might be yes. the most boring movie ever. I am actually. I kind of want to watch that and hate it um you should definitely watch it and uh, yeah. again i will not volunteer to be on that episode of the podcast but i would love to hear you talk about that on the podcast <laughs> I, i'm pretty sure i can find somebody to do that with me so out of those four films ollie which would you put as your number four which do you think is the worst of those four films i I think I would put Kingdom of Heaven as the worst of those four films. I just, for some reason, there was something about it that just, and anybody listening, yes, I have seen both the theatrical and the director's cut. The director's cut does not make it better. The director's cut makes it longer. That's all that it does. It adds in extra. It people. Oh, it really builds up the love story between the two of them. No, it doesn't. It it just gives you more time with two people who look like they could not be wanting to be any further from each other on screen. So I would have number four, Kingdom of Heaven. So I'm going to preface my rankings with the fact that I actively dislike all of these films. I I do not want anybody to think that being my number one ultimately as we get there means that I like that movie. I would like to emphasize that. Mm-hmm. My number four is going to The Last Duel. Is it objectively his worst film? I'm not <laughs> no. sure it actually is. Like, I, I don't actually think it... I, I kind of don't actually think it is. Oh, wait, sorry. Worst of those four or his worst movie? Of those movie? four. All right. Of right, those four. It's, it's definitely not his worst movie. I'm not sure that I actually think inherently Last Duel is the worst of these four movies. I do think it is the one that is, in my opinion, the 
most infuriating um, for a number of reasons, um, which I discussed on that episode. And I'm not going to get into in too much detail because otherwise I feel like this episode would need more of a trigger warning than it's getting. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'll just say, like, I think on the grounds that that enrages me the most and is currently my reigning zero, I think that is my number four. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sarah, what's your number three? You're gonna hate me. This is oh, my number no three. No way! No way! Gladiator no is my number three. Way, Sarah is no. The... I simply don't think there's a redeeming second about it. <laughs> I like nothing about this movie. Nothing at all. I no. It's worse than kingdom of heaven for you i actually think it is by virtue of the fact that while i do not think orlando bloom gives a good performance i think that russell crowe gives a worse performance okay i think russell crowe is worse worse than orlando bloom yeah. <laughs> I think it is a travesty that he won Best Actor for this film. I think he's crying right now. He hasn't, I'm not, I don't mean listening to the episode. I mean, right now, in the real world, he's heard that sentence he somehow. He's like, did somebody just, somebody just say Orlando Bloom was better than I was? Oh my God, Sarah. I was not expecting that. I struggled with these rankings, I will say. What would your number three be? Uh, my number three. Now I'm I'm gonna preface this by saying, number two and three here are very close to each other, and <laughs> I think number three, I'm going to say, is Robin Hood. Um, just because it is, and this is the thing, I think i kind of liked that movie i think i gave it a three at the time two and a half three like i think it's a decent movie but it is so po-faced it is so full of itself and even even down to friar took took like a comedy character that does not get a laugh out of me in that movie even his my bees and my family. The bees like, are my family. Like, even that doesn't doesn't get to me. Like I laugh at that because I remember me and you laughing at it. Right. But he doesn't say that to be funny. Like my no. bees and my family. Like no, he does not. So yeah, and also taking a, that's Robert Baratheon as well. But uh right. yeah, uh yeah, so I'm gonna put that number three. Um and I think that it's it's an okay movie. Like I think if you watch it you, you will have a fun time with it. Uh, but now I'm not looking forward to what I'm going to say is my number two. <laughs> because yeah. for all the reasons you just said that it was your number four, and I'm saying I'm going to put it slightly above Robin Hood because there are parts of The Last Jewel, which is my number two, that I find funny. Like, I think that there are actors swinging for the fences in their roles playing characters like i think i think matt damon like that's a low-key 
goaded, as the kids say, comedy performance to me. And I don't know why. I, I am not. I don't think any... he's supposed to be funny. That's the problem. I find him hilarious. And I, I it's do just not his, think he's I think it's his stupid haircut. It's his stupid seriousness that he's going with it. And I don't know what it is. Himself and Ben Affleck. And I just find. I just. I watched that movie and I was like, I am really enjoying this. I think the politics behind it are excruciating to watch. I think everything about it just screams how did you make this movie Ridley but he did it well like he it's a well made movie it's a well acted movie it's just a shame that she has so little agency in it and I think she's even good in the movie it's just yeah I actually think she's giving a good performance that the only reason that character has a personality is because of her yeah and she's she's a very good actress but yeah so I'm going to put that as my number two. I, it's well behind my number one, which we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. But yeah, uh, also just for the record, um, both of these movies would be ahead of Exodus, Gods and Kings. Because that's bad. Yeah. And all of the movies would be ahead of 1492, The Conquest of Paradise. So, and again, I would like to preface this with I hate all of these movies. My number two is Kingdom of Heaven. For all the same reasons that you put it as your number four, right? It is it is not a good movie. Um, what are its redeeming features for me? Uh, probably its biggest redeeming feature is that Russell Crowe isn't in it. Um, <laughs> Why do you I hate actually, Russell Crowe so much? I really hate Russell Crowe. I just, I, I just genuinely, I don't think he's a good actor. Um, that's probably the main redeeming feature for me is that Russell Crowe isn't in it. Um, I actually think that some of the like side characters and villains I actually think in Kingdom of Heaven are okay performances. Um, like I think Edward Norton as Baldwin isn't bad. I think like the temp the like villainous Templars and like Guy de Lusignan I actually think aren't like the performances aren't bad. I have issues with the character with like I have issues with everything in that movie, but like I think some of the performances are fine. And that the supporting characters, at least some of the supporting characters, I think are more interesting than they are in Gladiator, which is why it's beating Gladiator. That I think the supporting characters, with the exception of Commodus, are just actually excruciatingly dull mm -hmm. um, in Gladiator. And I think they support, there are more interesting supporting characters, like more, more, more interesting, yeah, like side characters in Kingdom of Heaven, which is why that gets a, a marginal better but i i would like to emphasize that i also hate it <laughs> please um, do not take this as an endorsement of the film kingdom of heaven so by process of elimination sarah your number one is then my number one is robin hood and now this is i think entirely because if you took out all the parts of the movie about robin hood and just kept in the bits at the court with Oscar Isaac as John and Eileen Atkinson as Eleanor of Aquitaine and Liz Situ as um, Isabelle d'Anjoulem. I think those are good. I think those actually are genuinely good. Uh-huh. <laughs> Again, please do not take this as an endorsement of the film Robin Hood, which is bad. It's it's not bad. It's 
It, I think it's, it's a decent awful. movie. <laughs> I, I, I think it and like i don't know and like I, the bees are my family like is it intended to be funny i don't no, know but did i actually not. laughed like i don't think it is but you know i laughed and i actually will say like i actually think i mean so like last stool just every second of watching it i just like wanted to like not exist anymore i was just like hated every second gladiator and kingdom of heaven i actually tend to be just really bored watching I actually think that there's enough stuff that is, like, silly in Robin Hood that's actually, I think, the one that I'm most, like, entertained by. And it's not because it's supposed to be funny. It's because, like, it is hilarious that, like, the bees are my family bit. It is hilarious that the plot is, like, a life swap, wife swap. Is that supposed to be funny? Not at all. But at least, like, the unintentional comedy of Robin Hood, I think, actually, for me, makes it more watchable than any of these other movies. I I think you're just bowled over by remembering the better Robin Hood movies we've done, including 2018's Robin Hood. Um, one, I actually the think one this where, is better than that. I think the one, the one where Robin Hood is, um, you know, uh, an allegory for the war in Afghanistan. Uh, yeah, I, I actually I do think the 2010. If I had to rank my Robin Hoods, like I think actually Ridley Scott's Robin Hood is better than that Robin Hood. Though I think otherwise it's probably at the bottom. I think it's I think it's the second worst Robin Hood. I've I ever. think. Oh oh, God no 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 no. no. Robin Hood, Ridley Scott's Robin Hood, and both it and the twenty eighth Robin Hood are way better than Men in Tights is. Uh, Even I, not feeling like Men in Tights age well, I actually don't agree with that. I, I think actually, I still think Men in Tights is better. I think Men in Tights is one of the worst movies. Like when I know it, I get it. It doesn't age well and stuff like this, but like. When people say that about movies, a lot of times I watch them and go, ah, you have to take it into account at the time. Even when this that came out, some of those jokes are. Like, I will never, ever get over the, oh, we have to run away. Oh, I'm the black character. Better pump up my Jordans. It's bad. Get, I'm not going to say it isn't bad. That's but... bad. That's, that's that, oh, so bad. Anyway, um, my number one is Gladiator. Um, I think it's an excellent excellent movie uh i think it is one of the best known movies that plays in the time period that uh medieval is covering which you know because of timeline <laughs> can pretty much be anything now but um yeah i, I it's a re- it's a really well-made movie and i understand uh, like i don't want to give my estimate to you again right i totally understand all the things that the problems that sarah has with it I just, in this particular instance, I disagree. I think we agree 95%. I think the yeah. most we've been apart before, apart from 13th Warrior, was like one star. And usually we're a half star within each other. So Yeah, I think like little hours, I like to decent amount more than you did. Um, <laughs> well, but... I, that's because I'm not a huge comedy fan, as viewed by the fact that I think Matt Damon is funny <laughs> in the last June. <laughs> Oh man, I found nothing funny about the last duel. I was just like, this is genuinely the most grueling experience of my life. It really could just be his haircut, you know. <laughs> just so stupid. Um, but yeah, uh, so ranking them, um, yeah. That oh, I I wasn't expecting our ranks to be so different. 
Yeah, that was that was an interesting exercise. I'm also I glad just uh, also everyone for a peek behind the curtain. Um, I usually do have in notes in advance at my rating, but I left out of the copy of the notes that I sent to Ollie. I left out my uh, rankings of. Oh, memory. I had no idea. That's what I assumed. Yeah. Kingdom of Heaven, like even though I could tell Sarah hated the last jewel on that episode, um, we didn't really talk about it because I had seen it before you had seen it. And I didn't want to do any spoiling of it. And then the podcast episode came out. So I didn't want to be rehashing because of how angry she seemed. So, um, yeah, I didn't realize that you legitimately hated it more than Kingdom of Heaven. Considering that this podcast exists because of how much you hate Kingdom of Heaven. I know. And Ridley managed to outdo himself. (laughs) I I think Ridley Scott's a really good director. I just, I simply don't. I I mean, I just... I think Alien is the only of his movies that I've seen that I like at all. You didn't you didn't like House of Gucci? I didn't see House of Gucci. I had no interest in seeing House of Gucci, I'm gonna be honest. He's he's made some he's made some really good movies. Uh obviously there's Alien. Um there's let me see off the top of my head. Uh, do you know what? Just you might enjoy this. The Counselor from 2013 is a really good movie. That one I, I haven't seen. Watching. Yeah, so that's what I'm oh. saying. You should check it out. It's got Michael Fassbender oh. and a bunch of other people. Cameron Diaz is in it, and it's it's about politics and corruption, and it's good. Now it, yeah. it's one that is really lowly rated on like Rotten Tomatoes, mm. like 25 or something like that. But it's good. It's good. But anyway, yeah. I mean, um, you know, uh, maybe I'll, uh, you know. Maybe when I don't have like historical opinions, I will like Ridley slightly more, though I also have like a lot of, okay, like Blade Runner, I don't hate, but I like gender wise, Blade Runner actually really, really bothers me. Um, Like I think the gender stuff in Blade Runner is re, both the original and the uh, sequel, I think is really fucked up. I also have a lot of issues with, I mean, Prometheus I A don't think is a good movie. And also, um... There have been few things that have made me angrier when I like actually being in a movie theater than the moment in Prometheus where she asks for a C-section instead of an abortion to get the like alien thing out of her body. I've never been so so angry. It's so stupid. Oh my god. Give me a C-section. No, give her an abortion. You don't want a C-section. You don't want a nice, healthy birth for your fucking alien baby. I'm a C-section. Like, come the fuck on. She doesn't want a C-section. God. (laughs) It is Jeff. Like, every now and then I watch these movies. I'm like, has Ridley Scott ever met a woman? (laughs) I'm sure he's met one at some stage. God. Okay. Ollie... Where can the listeners find you on the internet? Uh, wait, uh, Thelma and Louise is a good movie. That I haven't seen, and I actually am always very surprised to hear that he directed that, and I'm assuming it's the source material and not what, him. What about The Martian? I found The Martian kind of boring, actually. I know, I kind of like The Martian. I, I think maybe we just really disagree and really Scott. Um, Sir, uh, as always, uh, people cannot find me. I am... Um, unsearchable but i do i guess spot a long time guest co-host of <laughs> judging book covers with stephanie cortez and megan griffin where it's basically a book club podcast where we talk about books so we pick a book and then 
over the course of a month we read it and um yeah so the the last one has been on hiatus it's been on hiatus it was like right so uh one of us had a parent die so we didn't have time to basically record and weren't really in a mood to record but it'll be coming out roughly around the same time this will be coming out so um if you if you log in you will be seeing us talking about um a really interesting book so judging book covers uh let me see i'm also on a podcast called welcome to reddington um the series is uh an actual play um monster of the week podcast where Mm -hmm. i play a boston detective named jimmy rigney uh james rigney uh, which was robert jordan's real name um so i played jimmy rigney and uh yeah i don't put on a boston accent because i can't um but i have a lot of fun and i realized how much of a problem it would have been to edit it because i listened back to my own audio recently and i spent the vast majority of it because i thought it was funny assuming that it would be cut out uh, humming and singing show tunes <laughs> in the background while other people were doing their thing and I was humming music because for some reason I decided that my character loved the sequel to Phantom of the Opera which is called Love Never Dies and I went through <laughs> nobody loves much, the sequel to Phantom of the Opera nobody does and I went through almost all of the songs and tunes from that just in the background like, <laughs> like this in the background so um uh, i apologize to the editors for that but it was a lot of fun and i think you guys will enjoy it so that's where you can find me at the minute all right if you've enjoyed this podcast please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review on said podcatcher app especially apple podcasts i'll read new five-star reviews in future episodes Please also follow the podcast on X at Media Evil Pod. I've and never join our been Facebook so group. happy not to have done any of I, that you're, stuff. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. You can also find me on X and Instagram at Sarah F. Ducker for now. And if you have any questions or suggestions, I'd love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. So, Ollie, thank you for uh, returning to discuss Gladiator oh, with absolute me. absolute pleasure. I'm uh, going to try and get back on for Apocalypto at some stage coming soon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it, um, right. Yes, actually. So the uh, the next episode, uh, so for anybody who's interested in uh, hearing a bit about uh, Spain and about uh, Spanish language representations of the Middle Ages, uh, I will be covering it with uh, my uh, medievalist friend and colleague, Ryan Speech. I will be covering Toledo Cruce de Vecinos, which Ooh. is essentially a soap opera that is set in 13th century Toledo. So if that sounds fun to you, check out the episode. It sounds lovely. All right, Sarah, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. Bye.